0: Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Jeremy Scott Fitness Podcast or Radio Show. Coming to you on this uh, Sunday, April the 10th, 2022. Hopefully it finds you staying safe and staying sweaty all at the same time. On today's episode, we have my man, John Gallagher, in the house. But before we jump into that, two quick housekeeping things. One reminder, our 40 Days of Fitness program is kicking off here in how many days? Six days and 10 hours from right now. We actually start on April the 18th, but we close the registration down on that 16th, which is a Saturday evening. If you guys want to get down Hit me up. I'm happy to give you a little podcast discount code. The site is jeremyscottfitness.com slash 40-days-of-fitness. That is a mouthful. The link is in our Instagram bio. It'll be on the newsletter obviously all week. Uh, You guys can check it in the stories. Obviously, it's 40 days of activity. This program is 100% new. We have never run it before. We filmed it late last year, and if I had to say one thing about it, it is the probably hardest fitness-based program that we have put out There's other things we've done that are different, but in terms of just fitness, I do think this is the most uh, difficult of them all, just because we have a couple protocols outside of just the workouts you actually have to do that are going to be definitely challenging for you guys. But anybody can do it, uh, and you can do it from home, dumbbells and a bench, you guys literally can crush it. So if you're interested, check out the link in the IG bio. It's our 40 Days of Fitness. It'll be on the newsletter. And uh, if you have questions, obviously just ask sooner than later. And again, if you want a podcast discount code, I'm happy to get it to you guys, ASAP. And you already know, the episode is brought to you by my homies at Athletic Greens, the one thing I take every single day and I never miss. If you're somebody who struggles to eat enough fruits and vegetables, and let's be real, almost all of you guys do, even I do on certain days, especially when I'm traveling or lately we've had a bunch of friends and family in town and it's just tough to... uh, choke down 10 servings of greens every day so I do the best I can and then obviously I do this to cover the gaps in what I'm missing if you want to check it out right now we'll give you guys a year supply of free vitamin D which you should already be taking and five free travel packs the site is athleticgreens.com jeremyscott Jeremy Scott to get hooked up with the deal or if you're somebody who's on the fence Maybe you've heard me talk about it before you're just not sure message us however you can i will literally have monica send you a pack right to your front door you can try it 100 for free it is the best tasting greens in the planet 75 whole food ingredients with probiotics and digestive enzymes in there and literally it's like the equivalent of 10 to 12 servings of antioxidants of fruits and vegetables so it's tough to beat in one scoop you don't got to take 14 pills Throw it in water, and you guys are good to go. So if you want it now, athleticgreens.com slash Scott. Otherwise, hit us up for the free sample today. Whew, always a mouthful. So now, my man, John Gallagher in the house. Jeremy. What's going on, dude?
1: Not too much, man. Very glad and honored to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Should yeah. be fun.
0: All the way from uh, West Virginia?
1: I grew up in West Virginia. Went to West Virginia University. Go Mountaineers. I live in... Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now,
0: which one's nicer?
1: Oh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. From a from a place to live, no doubt about it, is is a better place. But it's fun to go back to school once in a while, and see a football game, and see friends as well.
0: For sure. So for these guys who don't um, don't know you, they don't know anything about you. We'll go uh, we'll go origin story. You can go as far back as you want to go. You can paint paint whatever picture you like for these guys.
1: Sure. Thanks, Jeremy, for the opportunity again. In terms of going back in the story, and it, it really is a, a West Virginia story, I grew up in the northern Panhandle, of West Virginia in the steel towns and you know, really as an opportunity there, did not get a chance to leave West Virginia a whole lot. I ended up at West Virginia University, Mountaineer graduate, mechanical engineer, and really moved away right out of the bat, moved in Indiana, Saint Louis, Chicago, many places in the Midwest as I went through that journey. But as an engineer it was a short time that I was in that design side and engineering, really got a chance to participate in, in leadership roles going forward. And I got an opportunity to lead a distribution center when I was 28 years old. And it gave me a chance to really learn a new methodology as well that we'll talk a little bit about today, lean methodology of a Toyota production system, how to help organizations ultimately improve their business, engage the people in the organization and make improvements. And, and through that journey, I had three different manufacturing companies that I worked for, moved out to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is just a little bit colder than Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And when I learned that I wanted to really stay married for a long time, since my wife was not a big fan of Fort Wayne, Indiana, although the work was good, we moved back to Roanoke, Virginia, where she was from, and actually took some of those tools to work in real estate. And maybe that's not the craziest part of just going back to work in real estate back in 2006 or 2007. But I also teamed up with my mother-in-law who had been in real estate for 30 years. And I just thought that some of the Things that I learned with regards to that Toyota production system, waste elimination could work really well in real estate. And it did. It ended up helping us to become the, the top team within three years in our area. So that was pretty cool. But so ultimately, it, I rode that real estate um, trend right to the bottom in 2009. That business did not become fun anymore.
0: So you started it in 06?
1: Yeah, 06.
0: Yeah. And for the people, maybe the younger kids might not know, what is it like selling homes in 06?
1: 06 was not too bad selling homes. 06 was when the pricing was going up. It feels a lot like what is what is happening right now with regards to pricing, things being a little bit high, inventories were low, and people were moving into homes and buying homes. And it really felt from a process standpoint that, that selling houses, while it was still a relationship business and getting the listings and getting the customers, that it was an opportunity that, you know, we could do really well. Now, again, fast forward that just a couple years into 2008, when the housing crisis starts to hit, loans start to fall down, things like that. And it becomes ultimately in that business, a dog-eat-dog world. I mean, that business in general has, you know, any, any community or any association that you deal with probably has three or 400 too many real estate agents as it is. It's not enough transactions for them to exist. But it became really not a whole lot of fun again. So I wanted to get back into manufacturing, which is really where I cut my teeth. And I started to chat with a company who's actually doing consulting, where I had learned before they wanted me to do consulting, and I just kept telling them, no, I had no desire to do that life. It was something that uh, I had no desire to do. And the third time they called me, they said, well, what if you did it in healthcare with regards to that work? And I had never thought of that before in terms of hospitals and clinics helping them to improve their operational efficiencies, utilizing their employees to make things better. And frankly, uh, as a patient of a healthcare system to make things better for the patient. So I was, a little, I was naive enough to believe that I could make a difference in that industry and I said, I'll do that for a couple years and I'll get back into operations and manufacturing. And that's been 12 years since then. When I get back in that, I spent 10 years uh, with a large consulting company, ended up working for IBM. And then when COVID hit last year, it was something that we are a face-to-face business in terms of what we did. And I went from face-to-face in Saudi Arabia with a hospital system there, face-to-face with a clinic in Boston, Massachusetts, to no more face-to-face. And we couldn't do that anymore. And so the business model didn't work for us and we did not as an organization really pivot quickly enough. And so I was provided an opportunity to start my own business. Growing Champions is the name of my company today, Consulting and Executive and Success Coaching with an organization when they told me they no longer needed me there. So I started up my own company back in October of 2020. I do consulting services for small companies, manufacturing and electrical contracting right now are those that I work with. And also still do, again, success and executive life coaching with individuals and the organizations, the leaders from those companies that I consult with. So I still work with a healthcare system in Boston and do some coaching with them remotely. But it's been it's been quite a ride. So that's kind of the the career ride, if you will, and how how it's gone.
0: And what is uh like for people listening? What is consulting healthcare? Because for me, it, the, if it's like a hospital system, these are businesses, and I think a lot of people just think like, oh, I go to the doctor and they're going to help me, and then, which is true. It's what they do. But we have. CFOs here of hospitals. It is a business, like any other thing. The thing has to make money. So is that what you guys are into, or is it like more like from a efficiency operational standpoint? Or what's the scope of like what it looks like when uh, a hospital calls you, or a clinic calls you, or a, a whole system calls you guys?
1: No, that's a good question. I think, and again, we do work with the hospital systems and the, and the clinics or the large clinics, especially when it, when it came from the larger company. And you are right; it is a business, whether you're a not-for-profit healthcare organization or you're a for-profit healthcare organization. It's about 50-50 in the U.S. as those go right now. But I do remember talking with a nun in the Catholic healthcare system in Illinois. And again, it's a not-for-profit system. And no matter how you look at it, but she did say, if there's no money, there's no mission. And so when there's no money in the system, they have to get that out of there. So that's generally the reason they'll probably call us first. Uh, But we really don't start to dive into the economics of their business as much as we do the The way they handle the flow of patients through their system and how slow it actually takes a little bit of what we were talking about before we jumped on here is if you can think about that from a patient's perspective whether you're visiting a hospital or whether you're visiting a clinic for your primary care physician's appointment most the biggest waste in that type of opportunity is waiting whether you're sitting in a waiting room whether you're waiting to see the physician in a cold room that has the paper that's really uncomfortable to sit on or whether you're waiting for an appointment to be scheduled because they can't see you for three or four months and you just found out that you had cancer and that's not acceptable. That's just, that, those things exist in our systems today. And we work with them to say, look, if you take care of the patients flowing through your system, identify the services that they need at the time they need them and improve that, the financial generally will take care of itself. Now, again, the financial doesn't take care of itself with regards to the payment systems and things like that that exist in healthcare in our country. But for the most part, that's where we focused our effort is look at the patient and how are you handling the patient, how you flow flowing through there, whether it's through the emergency room and how you triage them coming in or whether it's through the clinic and how you room that patient, take their blood pressure, and get them started on the journey.
0: And what is the – like what you've seen, like obviously through the years, why is there this the, – the lag where it's, you know, if I think of something that's more efficient. You mentioned the airline. I'll let you – Give the the example later where the airlines and obviously been traveling lately, it might not be the most efficient, but it's relatively, you you show up, your flights are generally on time or pretty close. You kind of get where you're going most of the time. We all have like a horror story for sure. But I feel at, at most clinics, most hospitals, there's always a wait. There's typically always a wait to get in, and then there's always multiple waits as you go there. Is that like a staffing issue? Was is there just too many humans of us trying to get in all the time, or we're too sick, or what's the, what's well, the deal?
1: Well, it's it's probably a mix of all those things as you go forward with it. And if you look at the if you look at the biggest problem with regards to what I the word I would use is access to healthcare today, uh, actually I think again I think it's the external forces that play a role on that. So if you want to go in and you want to get started up with a primary care physician, one of the first questions they ask you is what's your insurance. So yeah. they've got to take you through the process of making sure you can have the insurance ready to go. And then you've got to do the, uh, the checks to make sure that, uh, well, I'm a physician that is part of that system, so we can go ahead and take you on as a patient. But it really is, I mean, from a capacity standpoint, a physician has so many 15-minute appointments in a day, and there are so many patients that they see. Generally, they have a population somewhere between a, a full-time physician will have a population of patients somewhere in the 2,500 to 3,000 different patients that they see, right. now, they don't see every week or every month, but that's the number of patients that they have in their panel like each, that they use. Kind of yearly? Yeah, I mean, it's probably, it's probably probably year because you think about if they want you to come in once a year for an annual physical, that would be there. But that's that's part of the scheduling that they do, right? So I have to get 2,500 patients in for an annual physical. So they'll block certain times for physicals. And then if they have an urgent care appointment that you need, hey, I got my sinus infection, I need to be seen today, or I you know broke my arm and I need to get in to see my primary care physician after I get my x-ray, that they've got them all taken up with some of these general appointments that exist, whether it's those physicals. And so it gets, it gets tough to start to see the urgent care. And then what's hap- what happens in our healthcare system is people then, if they can't get access to their physician as they go forward, they end up in the costliest system that they can use, and that's the emergency room. They'll just go to the emergency room because everybody will take them in the emergency room, and that's how it ends up working. But I don't know that it's capacity as much as do we see the right patients for the right reasons. That's a, that's a lot of it as well. I mean, you, you set some of these guidelines in that, and I can go really deep here with regards to you know health versus health care and a, a diabetes patient or the different mor- morbidities that exist, obesity, and people don't get care until it's too late. Then they need to be seen more and more and more because now they're unhealthy. They wait until they're unhealthy to be seen. And so those healthy patients that need to get in for a regular visit once in a while, whether it's an annual physical or... Again, when you get to my age, Jeremy, you get there whether it's colonoscopy that you got to do when you turn fifty, or again when you're fifty-five, is they don't have an opportunity to see you because they're seeing so many sick patients that are going in there that waited too long. Then the nasty, the nasty down spiral with regards to serving sick patients in our healthcare system is that we treat the symptom and we don't treat the the disease that needs to change, the behavioral that needs to change, and so we try to fix it with medicine and things like that.
0: Well, and part of that's probably. There's just too, it's too many people, right? Mm-hmm. Like imagine if I had to see 3,000 people here a year, there's no way I don't, I'm not that bright. I don't have the mental capacity to remember 3,000 people. We got a couple hundred people here, a couple hundred on the internet. I do the best I can remembering everybody's name, where they're from. And again, that's probably capped out at about like four or 500 beyond that. It's I'm going to punt it because I, right. I can't even do it. And again, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm teaching fucking jumping jacks here you know what i'm saying like it's not like it's not that terrible if like something goes missing where these guys when i go in i obviously had a physical tuesday super great obviously but i waited whatever and, and relatively easy to schedule for that um but i did have a social worker here where she's more on the mental health side and, I'm, and i think it was like february uh and she, i'm like when can people come see you she's like, oh april that was her earliest appointment and i do think that's obviously a huge issue and to the point you made it's like fitness, right? And it's the same way I think about like little nagging injuries. People don't do mobility and tissue work or start stretching until something already hurts. Where if you did it like car maintenance, let me change my oil, I'm probably not going to have these, you know, catastrophic breakdowns yet. That's kind of what people do with their bodies, which is really strange. And kind of causing part of this, I guess, you know, it gets jammed up, if you will. Absolutely.
1: It, it, it creates the crisis that we're in today because of the health of the population. And, and the fact that, again, you, you mentioned the capacity. I mean, a, a physician if they have 15-minute appointments that they see, then they can do 16 to 18 appointments a day. That's you know 300 a month, or three 3,600 a year. You can only see each patient you know once or twice on average at the most, and it doesn't it doesn't work that way. And then some of the other problems with regards to your waiting, you go in there. I had a one o'clock appointment. I don't get seen until 2:15, is because once they get behind on their first patient, then they get behind the whole day. So we try to teach them processes. Uh, and some of the work we do that wouldn't get them behind uh, as they get started on that journey
0: and who if you're obviously if you run your own practice you can do what you want be as profitable or as unprofitable as you like and it's up to you to hemorrhage money if you're the owner it's on you these guys who are in like the bigger systems is it the like they have like an administration or a team that sets like hey you physicians need to see about this many people like how does that do you know how that works
1: sure absolutely well the CEO of the organization he'll have the chief medical officer and the the chief operations officers but those that three generally together uh, will set the performance standard if you will that says your efficiency is going to be something I they measure them from an efficiency standpoint a utilization standpoint of appointments and how they get that done so they they will say that your average panel size using that term the 3,000 or the number of people that you see, should be somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500. Now they they use terms like adjusting the panel size based on the sickness of the population. This is the one that always gets me uh, with regards to how many diabetic patients you may have on your panel or how many uh, patients you have with heart disease that are on your panel. So they'll shrink your panel because they know you have to see those people a little bit more. One of the challenges that runs into that though is how you start to measure like the goodness of the physician, right? And if your panel is really sick, how are you going to turn them healthy? is really the goal, is to to get them healthy. But that's not how the system is driven to work today. It's driven on an efficiency standpoint. And again, another point that we tell them that it's more expensive over the long term to treat a diabetes patient with their insulin or whatever else that has to go on versus getting them healthy through nutrition changes, through exercise changes, through changes in behavior in their life, stop smoking, that would help them to reduce the overall cost of of the system and not have to be seen as much and again what happens in the busy capacity world of physician's life is they don't get the time that they need to really coach their patients to change their behaviors it's much easier for them to hand out a prescription and say get this done go pick it up at the CVS on the way home take four of these and call me next week and let me know how you're doing
0: and that's just the system they're in like even even if you want to well I'm just thinking if it's like if I put myself in their shoes like again i it seems like a terrible job. No offense to any of the doctors out there. It just seems like it's so much responsibility and so much pressure for not enough money, in my opinion. So if I had to see 20 people a day and I'm doing it in these little blocks of time and I'm I'm trying to change their life in 15 minutes, but even if I could do that here, which is not I do work with people here still one-on-one, and I, they're only people I like, and it's fun, and it's, it's a good time, where these are not people I'm choosing. I'm seeing 16, 18 people a day, and I'm trying to change their life and do that consistently every day, but it's not the same people. We do it in a context of like, let's say you train here. I'm going to see you Monday, Wednesday, Friday, maybe Saturday, maybe Saturday. So five days a week, I can see you. You can listen to me on a podcast. You can read all our stuff. I can actually have a conversation with you multiple times a week. You're expecting this physician to change, you know, Rick's life. He sees him once a year or four times a year for 15 minutes. Like, there's – is there even, like – I don't even imagine how you even start a conversation in that short amount of time. Like, hey, man, you have to eat better, do this. Especially – and I don't mean to bag on anybody, but the world today, I've read reports where it's like some of these places are like, well, I don't know if we want to weigh people because, like, we don't want to offend them and all these kind of different things. And wherever you guys stand on that is your call. I don't give a shit. But it just seems – if you're trying to say things, people do, you know, get offended easier now than maybe they used to, but these are the conversations you have to have. And that's, it's too complex to do in a 12 minute time frame, one or two times a year.
1: Absolutely. And that's why you hear you know, much of the reason they get into being a physician is they want to help people's lives. Just like maybe while one of the reasons you've said often on your podcast uh, is that, you know, you want to help make people's lives better to sure. uh, a certain extent to make them better. And, and I do believe that most physicians, Want to do that when they when they come out of college and they start to do the residency, which is painful in and of itself. We can talk about education all the time in terms of how they go forward with it. But once they get caught up in that system, that race that is, especially a large healthcare system, and they're being measured on that 15-minute, it becomes very difficult. And the term burnout becomes prevalent really well. I have a friend, Paul Deshaun, who has written a book on preventing physician burnout through system improvement and things like that, because there are so many things. I mean, again, patient safety comes to mind. So you talk about seeing a patient once a year for an annual physical for You know maybe 30 minutes and you're supposed to be able to remember what you talked about with them a year ago Uh, with regards to that maybe in their last physical or two years ago or they haven't been in to see you for eight years because they've felt really well how do you how do you engage with them and make that happen but it's something that you know if you are going to spend only 15 to 30 minutes of your life engaged with your physician how can we expect that physician to make that impact on you if you're not willing to give up some of the things that got you sick in the first place but you're exactly right. You get to touch those ones here, maybe two, three, four times a week. They're touching them once or twice a year for 15 minutes, maybe. I, the last two times I've gone to the physician, actually, I because of the w- kind of work that I do, I go in there with a stopwatch to see what it's really like. And I'll spend 90 minutes in there and I'll get to spend three minutes with my physician. He'll come in, he'll read the, the vitals that were on there. He'll look at his computer and he's not looking at me. He's looking at his computer. And he says, yeah, this and this, your heart blood pressure looks good. Keep on your blood pressure medicine. We'll see you in another year or so. I'm like, that's it? That's
0: crazy, that's the only right?
1: conversation I get to have, really? And so it exists. And then something, when they start to run behind, all these things from a safety standpoint, I think one of the things that I find both amusing and concerning is uh, there's a term that physicians will use, and, and those of you listening, if you're a physician, you'll get it, is pajama time. Because what happens, they'll see all those patients. They don't get a chance to document what they did with those patients during the day as well. And so they take the end of the day in the evening over a glass of wine while they got their pajamas on, and they're entering in all their notes from their previous 16 to 20 patients that they saw during the day that day today. I'm like, how do you get that done? So that's one of the things we also try to teach them is let's get that done in flow. When that patient's done, put your notes in or get your nurse to help you put those notes in, and let's make sure we capture all the information we need to capture. Because I can't imagine from a safety standpoint over a glass of wine what you're forgetting about the conversation you had with that patient during the day.
0: It just seems like, and again, I I imagine – if you're a doctor, ninety-nine percent they want to, you know, you do that because you give a shit, because <clears throat> you're obviously taking on so much education and giving up so much of your life to do it. And I wonder, like, when they're going through medical school, you don't know what you don't know what it is until you're in it. I guess when you're like, oh, holy shit, like this is a business. I got to see this many people, and you're working all those hours with, you know, let's say fifteen people in a day. Then I'm going to document all fifteen at night you're working so much for, no offense, it's not that much money. Like you're not making a million dollars a year being a general practitioner, yet you're the responsible for all these humans. It seems like an impossible task, really.
1: I I think it's very difficult to do. And again, there are external things that that make an impact on that. I, um, I had an article that I read when I first got into this just several years ago. The Institute of Medicine would say that the third leading cause of death is medical error in our country, which is which is unbelievable when we think about all the things that we have going on. Now, it was pre-COVID, maybe it's number four now or whatever it is, but it is because some of these physicians aren't able to do some of those things. And I'm not saying they do that. To your point, we talked about this a little bit before. Intentionally, sometimes it happens and people are not well and they do uh, die as a result. But sometimes, because they don't have the time to do that, and so that's why it's so important. What what I've taught, what our organization has taught, where we. You know, We were a bunch of, 180 of us, when I was with a large consulting company, we would go into these healthcare systems and we were a bunch of consultants that were coming from the manufacturing background, running a business, making widgets, making parts. And that's what they would say to us when we first walked in the doors, like, you guys don't understand, we don't make parts, we treat people. We're just like, yes, but there are things about making parts that you can learn from your organization so that you can treat these people better and eliminate some of the waste, some of the over-processing, the multiple tests that occur. The, the reading of those tests and the errors that occur in some of the reading of those tests whether it's blood work whether it's uh, uh, your heart or whatever it is that they're taking a look at it's easy it's easy to miss something in that short period of time absolutely
0: well there's so many pieces too um, in every aspect of it because again I'm doing this for a living I get the secondary education from doctors here uh, medical device sales pharmaceutical reps obviously c level people at the hospitals and even just how they deliver like these trays sometimes to surgeons and how they track it and everything goes through, you know, we've had stories of friends of ours who work for some of the biggest companies, obviously, whether you guys realize or not, like I think our buddy does, and uh, maybe it's thoracic spine. So drives around with these trays, whether it's discs or screws in the trunk of his car shows up, it goes through this process. But if that, if let's say he was irresponsible that day, they might not have all the pieces they need. They show up to the surgery that causes, and I don't think a lot of people know that, Like, I always assumed, before I I met any of these guys who work for, whether it's, like, Medtronics or Stryker or anybody, I just assumed, like, everything was at the hospital, the doctor kind of does everything, I was a dipshit, obviously, and that's not how it goes, right? Like, a lot of times these, the reps are showing the physicians, like, how to do stuff when they go through, and there's so many moving pieces when you go to have a surgery or an appointment or even an operation that I don't think the general public really understands how complex it really is. And then, oh, by the way, on top of it, It's a business that has to be somewhat efficient.
1: And on top of it is a business. You're exactly right. One of the things that in the clinic environment with the physician inside the room, the door closed, we found that the number one reason he was leaving the room or he or she were leaving the room was that they didn't have the equipment in the room that they needed. So one of the tools that we teach is called 5S, sort, straighten, shine, stabilize, sustain, a place for everything, everything that's placed so that if it's not there, you know that it's not there. And we had people that would go in and do the setups. Same things are happening in, you mentioned the folks you know in the the medical equipment industry inside those operating rooms. You know, we're teaching them how to set up those carts to make sure they got all the tools they need for the specific surgery types that they don't have to go look for. You'd just be surprised. As you said, we don't see those things. And, you know, you really talk about it with regards to the finances of it. They still have to make money. They have to be able to generate a profit to be able to pay the people they need to pay. And I think Part of the challenge, one of the things I wrote about in that population health article, one of the barriers is the payment model that we have in this organization. Many of these physicians are only paid if they have a patient in front of them. So if we wanted to give them more time to take their notes and get those things done, the healthcare insurance system is not going to pay or reimburse them for that time. They wanna pay for the actual value added time where you're sitting in front of a patient. And they don't see the value at a time the payers don't necessarily see the value at a time of also taking the notes and making sure everything's consistent as you go forward so there's a talk about moving from volume you know how many people you see every day to value from the standpoint of saying how healthy is your population and i will start to pay you based on however many members you have that three thousand number i'll just pay you a per member per patient per month value for all those folks and I'll give you this money to take care of them and take care of them the way that you need to take care of them and, ma- and make them healthier. And if they are getting healthier in the old, the old system, and it still exists today, the old system exists in many places, is the healthier they got, that means the less you needed to see them. So that was the less revenue they generated because they weren't coming into the office to be seen. So we were actually penalizing the healthcare system by having a healthier population because they didn't come in to see them as much.
0: It, well, I mean, it makes sense. from a business standpoint, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But from a health standpoint, it right. makes zero sense. So when these guys, I think it's scored or something, is it better now that they have healthier people or is it better to have unhealthier people? <laughs> it depend, depends
1: on the model, right? But the, the way the model works today, and again, they're try, I would say that less than 10% of the healthcare system in the United States, it's better for them to be healthy with regards to the payment model. 90% of them still living in the old world of pay by the drink, get them in the door. You need to see them more. I mean, I would spend time with organizations to say, hey, we're coming out at the end of the quarter. We haven't seen enough patients. Let's make phone calls out to all those diabetes patients who haven't been in for their A1C so we can get them in here and get reimbursed for that appointment that needs to get in. So they'll start to go recruit patients to come through the door so they can get their revenue generated.
0: Which I guess if they really should come in, it's kind of a good thing, but then- it's kind of fucked because it's just <laughs> how it works. Well, I think, again, I learned obviously the last couple of years too, where we talk to the physicians here more and obviously most people, cause it's like through the COVID shit, the pandemic, everybody, you know, learns all these buzzwords and, and parroting certain phrases where you learn like ICU numbers, hot spots uh, all this social distancing. You learned all of these things people were saying yet. I don't think a normal or the average person even would understand oh, well, the ICU is at ninety-three percent. Well, if I was to hear that normally, I'm like, well, what does it normally run at? Is it zero percent? Is it forty-two percent? And that's where like we're confused because I'm like, I don't know what the number is for it to be profitable, but it's relatively high. I would imagine like you can't have an ICU at a hospital running at forty percent and making money. Right. And so like, when you're reading those numbers, obviously the news and panic porn is something completely different, but they would share it and I'm like, well, it's ninety-six percent. I'm like, well, is it normally is it normally at ninety? I'm like, so a 6%, a 6% increase is obviously big, but I'm thinking in my brain, well, it's not jumping 50% because I always think, well, the hospital is a business. They have to have people in there and it has to make money. If it's not, then they can't staff it correctly. And I wonder like some of these issues, because there is obviously this, this high burnout rate in the, in the stuff you guys have seen maybe 10 years ago till today is the system in a, in a better place, in a worse place. That's obviously a super loaded question because I'm sure some things are way better some things are probably worse. But obviously, it just feels that these guys feel like they're overrun a lot of times. And the doctors and the nurses seem like they're, in the last two years, obviously, didn't help. They're more stressed. And they've eaten more shit than they ever have before.
1: Well, for physicians, let me say that, and within the last 10 years, I think we're in a better place for the physicians and staff. And, and the reason I say that is, more than anything else, is because of the awareness of the burnout that it has been creating over the years. Because you didn't used to talk about it, probably? No, it was, it was not really an issue as, you know, something that we talked about when we went in and certainly whether it's the, the great resignation that exists now or whatever that space is, they're they're just deciding to leave because it's it's too much for them. It's just, it's become too much. And that wasn't normal even 10 years ago for them to leave or to talk about that burnout that existed uh, back then. So from that standpoint, from an awareness standpoint, I think it's much better. Yeah. From a financial standpoint inside these organizations, I mean, you continue to see the merging of these healthcare systems. You know, they become big players and then they'll break up and become small players. And you touched on this, the the single physician office just doesn't exist anymore because they can't get the relationships that they need to with the hospitals and with the specialists to be able to get their patients seen at a different rate. So it makes it very difficult for them <clears throat> and almost makes it to the point that they have to join these big healthcare systems. They become part of the machine that is the healthcare systems. I do believe there is a move to help the industry out from another word I've used, interoperability, which is another rabbit hole we could dive down for a, while, for a while. But these healthcare systems don't have the same computer systems. They don't talk to each other. So if I'm in a healthcare system in South Carolina and I were to come out here and get injured, nobody would have access to my medical records. They'd have to try and track my doctor down in South Carolina, which is actually still in Virginia because I haven't made a switch over to my new South Carolina doctor yet and so the computer systems can't find my healthcare information out here in Arizona because they're they're not on the same system as what my physician's office would be in Roanoke, Virginia.
0: So, and again, if you're I'm just thinking like when I'm a younger kid, who knows how the who knows how they track shit. Like I remember like you see your birth certificate, like it's this old ass like typed out thing. I'm sure yours is obviously similar. But some places I think maybe they still don't even use computers for everything. Like they're jotting, stomp, pen, and paper, and then maybe they plug it into whatever their system is. I mean, how many different systems are there? Like hundreds?
1: Well, no, I don't think there's hundreds. I think there's two There's two really big ones that probably represent 80% of the uh, industry, which is good. But even those two systems don't talk to each other. Their, their business is on their own. They don't want to talk to each other from the standpoint of that. And I, I believe that's where our, our, actually our government can play a role is that they should – I believe they should force those organizations to allow their – data to be shared across those systems
0: and why is it because it's, it's business right
1: oh yeah, yeah we don't we don't want to share information with anybody else the, the things that we used to talk about in consulting was we need a reverse magic button where they literally would have a you know it, if you if you're a willy wonka fan and you hit the button and all the particles of the candy bar went up in the air and it came back wonka vision or whatever it was yeah i forget what it was exactly that's what we referred to it as i need all this information to go up in the air into the cloud and be you know encrypted whatever but come back into the other system reverse magic button so I could read it and they're not able to do that today they, and it just from a patient safety uh, of the population of our people I don't I don't think it's a good thing
0: so if it's the same hospital system then that one probably would yes but if here it's like if you went to two like if i went to a, a private dude like and again sometimes when you say like, if it's a single guy it might not be is uh normal but maybe there's a group of doctors which we'll see like hey these five doctors started their own thing but even sometimes they're affiliated with the bigger dudes right so if you go there but then i go to the you know if i go to banner which is here and then mayo they're not the same.
1: They may not be the same. I don't know that for those two, but they may not be the same, and computer systems, computer systems may not talk yeah, so to each So if I
0: go here and I'm like, <clears throat> have you had any issues? No, I haven't. But I've had 100 issues. This guy doesn't know because I was full of shit and I didn't tell him. That's crazy. That well, here, I'll,
1: I'll give you I'll give you a, a personal experience of mine that it that really talked. So I went to – I had uh, Neck Fusion C, C4, C5 in 2015, and – Went through the hospital to to get the surgery done. It was actually one of my clients. I didn't tell him. That's a whole different story in and of itself. And I just documented my whole story to go through the system. Didn't tell him I was going through it. But I went to see the the surgeon after for a follow-up appointment uh, one week later after my surgery. And the health assistant looks in the computer, and there's no information there. She says, why are you here? I'm like, well, I had surgery. If you can see the scar on my neck here a a week ago, and I was supposed to come and see you for a follow-up appointment. Oh, we don't have any information. It hasn't been transferred. They were on the same system. It hasn't been transferred over to our computer system yet. They had a n- network of neurosurgeons who they'd partnered with, but they hadn't received the information yet from my surgery a week earlier. So they had to go find it. I had to sit there in the office and wait for them to go find the information uh, from my surgery to make sure everything okay, all my x-rays and everything else that went from the surgery. That's so crazy. That, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean – and I, you know, I know the system well enough to know, just because of experiencing it more than anything else from behind the curtain like that as a consultant, that you know, there are so many people who have no idea how to engage the healthcare. As a consumer of healthcare, many people would not know the conversation they need to have to make that happen.
0: Oh, no, no, I'd have no idea. Like, if I showed up and I had a neck surgery and I came the week later and, like, why are you here? I'd be like, well, are you fucking with me right now? <laughs> like, what <laughs> are you talking about? Yeah, am I on camera, right? Yeah, you just did surgery here. And I, I understand they won't remember me as the person, sure, but to have no documentation yet, that's kind of trippy, actually. Right. Well, and that's the hard part, too. And insurance is a whole different thing where obviously, like, we do it through Heather's, you know, corporate job and we have great insurance, which is awesome. So we can go places and it, it literally costs, you know, next to nothing when we go. But even just for me, and I like to think I'm relatively intelligent, uh, finding where I can go is kind of like a big mm-hmm. pain in the ass. Like, I'm going to – is this in the network? Is this out of the network? Do I pay 15 bucks? Is it 35 bucks? Can I not go here? Can I go here? I'm like, it's – I want to see this physician, but I can't because he's not inside of my circle or I have to get a referral for this thing. The whole thing of it to me just seems like – there's a lot of shit shows in the world, but the healthcare system has to be like one of the biggest ones. When I really think of it as the scope, because it's so complex, you're trying to really help people, but there's so much like bullshit basically to get through.
1: And it's 18% of our GDP on its way to 20. It's not slowing down anytime soon. And and other, there are no other countries like ours, and I believe we live in the best country in the world. But you know, there aren't many other countries that are even close to that. Some might be 10 or 11% with regards to the the cost of the system and GDP. And that similar incident medicine article. And I think, you know, as you talk about this, you would probably agree with this just from a number standpoint. But they say that 30% of the money that's spent in healthcare right now is just waste uh, with regards to there's just no value to that being spent at all. One more, one more last insurance story for me, and it was, it was about the surgery as well. Is that I prior to the surgery, I went in for a traction device. And again, knowing the system, so I went and found it on Amazon. I knew what I needed, I found it on Amazon. I bought it, but I said, I'm gonna see what happens. As I talked to the other people, so I went to the physical therapist who worked for the healthcare system, and so it was 300 bucks for me to buy it on my own. And I said, I'd really like to have one of these traction devices. I'm talking to the healthcare system, the PT. They said, well, well, we got one in inventory. We'll just give you one when we leave. I said, Well, how much is it going to cost me? Oh, don't worry about that. We'll just tell the insurance company, and then they'll send you a bill for whatever the difference is. I'm like, No, that's okay. I'd rather not uh, risk not knowing what it's going to cost me. Uh, after I leave the building second place I went was uh, an equipment building so they sell you know sell the sell the equipment I mean they home health care or whatever it is and I go in there and I say I'd like to have this surgical uh, device or not surgical but this cervical device right here to stretch my neck they're like what's the first question they ask me in the health store what's your insurance, insurance. yeah so they take my insurance <clears throat> number down they come back and they say it's $950 for you I bought it on Amazon for 300 bucks so you wonder why there's waste in health and spending and you know, insurance companies and things like that will be spent. It's just crazy.
0: So like you would have had to pay the nine hundred or the insurance would pick I would up. have had to
1: pay nine hundred, not counting. They didn't tell me how much the insurance would have paid, but I would have had to pay nine hundred.
0: Like I don't like when that that scam start. Like it it's be like if someone came in here, um, your membership is two hundred bucks a month. Well, what kind of insurance you have? Well, actually your membership is now eight hundred bucks a month. Well if it's fucking two hundred dollars, it's two hundred dollars. We've done this before with I remember Heather went for uh MRI and I'm, try, I'm trying to remember the numbers because I, I literally was on the phone and I'm like, explain this to me. Like I'm a three-year-old. I think our deductible was like a thousand bucks or something. And I don't even know it's that much. Maybe it was 500 bucks, but the MRI, if we used the insurance, was like $1,500, and I think if I paid it in cash, it was like 800 bucks. Yeah. and I'm like, I go, explain this to me like I'm seven, because it doesn't, I go, if the price is the price, this is what the fuck it is, and it was cheaper for me, and we have great insurance, but it was still cheaper for me to pay cash than I actually use the insurance, because it made no sense.
1: Because you're deductible. It's probably too high, so you had to pay the 1100 bucks anyway, because you wouldn't have met it for the year, and all yeah, that or it was like oh, Yeah, or
0: it was almost like okay. a break-even. I'm like, this is dumb, right?
1: And so most of those that exist today, you're exactly right. So there will be healthcare, large healthcare systems that will negotiate with these MRI companies. Say, what's my rate uh, for giving that? And they'll give them a rate, and then the insurance company jacks it up to get their piece of the profit, and they'll reimburse. it. I mean, it's unreal the healthcare system. And to your point, if you say at the start, well, I don't have healthcare insurance, they'll say, okay, for you it will cost this amount. Not that you get a better price necessarily. The healthcare insurance system might have got a better price, but they jack it up so much on the way to the journey, you still have to end up paying more for it.
0: So, like, when I think about it, too, we've had uh, physical therapists on here, and they used to work at, like, I don't want to say, like, a PT mill, but that's kind of what they are, where they would see, I don't know how many people, like, in a week, 50, 100, some crazy shit. And now it's like, well, I see six people a day now. The quality of care of those six people a day is 10 times better than seeing 15 people a day. But, for that business, it wasn't profitable because the machine was too big for her on her own built a system where they have a team of people where they can do it that way with offsetting different things and it's obviously it's a different you know business than the hospital itself and I think most people would agree like if you could see less people, if a physician had fifteen hundred people, they'd be way better than seeing three thousand. You could see them for probably twice as long. the frequency would increase if people wanted to. they could actually maybe learn some people's names and like understand it but that doesn't make enough money for the machine to run and so here we are
1: and that model is starting to pop up though concierge care ultimately for physicians who oh. will just say I'm going to take 100 100 patients and I'm going to charge you a monthly amount much like a membership would be here and yeah. say I'm going to charge you so much money a month almost like an insurance you're not going to go to any insurance company or anything like that you're just going to come to me for care I'm available to you 24/7 but I only have 100 or 200 patients instead of the 2500 and I don't have to I get to control my time more uh, and all those things. But many uh, individuals aren't, aren't able to afford a system like that. That's probably for the, you know, the top three to 4% of the population that can really make that work. But it is a model that is you know, becoming more prevalent in society today, again, as a result of that burnout.
0: It's crazy you say that, because the place I used to go uh, just for blood work and to see, like for my physical, uh, and because I, they I had, I, lo- I loved it because they have the little facility right in there. So they could pull blood, do everything, they can have it, and mm-hmm. then you don't have to there's no other lab corp or quest or whatever the hell it is um uh, but every single person there eventually went concierge and it's the scottsdale so i don't know what it was to start it was like like tens of thousands of dollars like some crazy shit and i'm like dude uh, you know knock on wood i'm like a healthy dude i'm here like i do basic shit so now i go to a different place where the insurance pays for it and it's fine but for all of them to do that uh i've never heard of that before and now i've heard that more frequently over time because for them obviously um, they're probably less stressed. And if you're in an affluent area, you can do it. However, 95% of people have no chance to that right. do that, which exactly is crazy. Right. So if you're sick these days, um, not a great time to no, be, to not be sick. Not necessarily.
1: And even even some of the rules, again, these are some unwritten rules that I would go, much like buying a car, right? Don't buy a car that was built on Monday morning or Friday afternoon in terms of uh, taking a look at the door and when it was made. But you don't want to go to the emergency room on a Friday evening. Uh, you go on a Friday evening, you're going to be stuck there for the weekend. I mean, it's just it's just something they're going to they're going to put you in because they don't have anybody to handle the information and get you out of there, uh, and it's very difficult to be. But so it's not easy. The best route actually is to stay healthy and not have to engage with the system. And if you have the opportunity to have insurance, that's a good thing. It's more for catastrophic it's catastrophic if something uh, bad happens. But staying healthy is better. And again, I I always I often think the memberships that you have here and what you're able to do three four five times a week with an individual. In my opinion, insurance companies should be reimbursing people for this as well with regards to uh, their money that they spend inside of here staying healthy versus spending it somewhere else.
0: There's probably, I'm trying to think, we have a couple hundred people here, less than five. Um, I don't know the percentages that they get, but we do print uh, or email them the receipts. We sign it, making sure they came so many days and then mm-hmm. they get like almost like a rebate, I guess. Which would make sense that most, like, again, I'm not a, like, think what you want about the government and printing money. That's These fucking guys do what they want. But it appeared to me like we spend a lot of money in a lot of dumb shit. And we've subsidized a lot of stupid things uh, over the years. <laughs> Getting people healthier seems like that would be an easy one. Or at least, like, having them, hey, if it's uh, Aetna or Cigna or Blue Cross, like, hey, here's 50 bucks a month towards you not being, you know inactive and and eating better and moving better. That would make sense. Obviously I'm biased because we'd make money. So, but that would make sense to me, obviously.
1: Absolutely. Um, I was coming back to your question on, you had asked, when did all this start? I want to read this quote to you. I had actually written down because I wanted to share it. Uh, But there's, there's a quote from a a physician. We'll just, we'll just use that right now. And then I'll tell you a little bit more. The existing deficiencies in healthcare cannot be corrected simply by supplying more personnel more facilities and more money. These problems can only be solved by organizing personnel facilities and financing into a conceptual framework and operating system that will provide optimally for the health needs of the population. Sounds simple enough, right? Yeah. 1967, this guy Ebert said this. He was running a large healthcare system, which had an insurance program as well in Boston, Massachusetts. And he said that, and we're still finding it today, almost 50 years later. So it's not, it's not 55 years later. It's not fixed. So, and it, it really is that simple and that difficult much like an exercise routine to lose weight and things like that. It really is that simple, and it's that difficult.
0: Well, I think when you look at people, too, when you, you pull them, like, what do they care about? Um, obviously, you know, if it's economy, uh, if it's gas prices, food prices, but health care is always usually like one or two. It's literally right up there. That's the biggest fear for people because a lot of stuff can wipe people out. And just going somewhere where you're getting subpar care and at no fault of the physician. It's just – The way I think of it's kind of like politics, right? Like I'm sure whatever you guys think about politics, I don't know anything. So I don't even, I don't know. I couldn't tell you what the job of a mayor is. I have no clue. Um, I'm sure it's important, but they get into politics. Like, and as they move up the ladder, like, Hey, I'm going to be the senator. I'm going to be a governor. Like I want to be the president. I'm sure they have the best intentions, but the game is so fucked. Like it's so rigged. It's so corrupt. They have to do all this shady shit to kind of keep moving up the ladder. It's the way I kind of think of like healthcare. Like they want to do the best they can, but they're, in this game that seems like it's unwinnable, like where it's just it's too much, too often, there's too many moving pieces, and they're kind of like ice skating uphill to, to try to really help people. And the, the system's just, is it, is it too, you're too deep into it at this point? Like how, you'd have to like, re, how do you revamp the well, whole so thing? Also, so
1: that's one of the second barriers that I talked about in the article. So one was interoperability, had the computers talking to each other was a big barrier to overall population health. The second is the financial model and how these healthcare systems are reimbursed, how they make their money is very difficult. And so the, I, be, I do believe that the shift from volume, seeing people every 15 minutes to value, keeping people healthy uh, is the right model that we need to move to as a, as a country, as a healthcare system. And the time that it takes financially for them to move there is, too, is the gap is too big. So once you try to make that shift, your financials go to hell. And you can't, you know, you start to not make money for a, a little period of time because you're trying to make that transition to a, a value-based model instead of volume. And the average, <clears throat> excuse me, the average uh, lifespan of a CEO in the healthcare systems nowadays is three and a half years. And so those guys why, don't. Why is that? Well, it's probably similar, right? The numbers don't work. The board of directors gets fired up, and they say, "I'll see you later." I mean, there are some CEOs that have been there a long time. But, you know, if they're not making good money, they're going to change the CEO as much like, much like they will in large manufacturing companies, things like that. It's just, it's just a short term.
0: And that, is that guy typically was a doctor sometimes or no?
1: In many cases, I don't know the data anymore. When I was in there, the, the best physicians usually get promoted up through the organizations to the chiefs and then to the chief executive officer, which was a flawed model overall. And there's so many different things that exist there because if you bring in a business person into the CEO role, then the physicians believe that you don't care about them because now we have only somebody running a business. So they want a physician to run it, but they have no idea how to run a business. Look, those physicians have been told all their lives from high school up through college and through 12, 12 years of school that they're the best at whatever they do. They've never been given a grade. Another story on that. They've never been given a grade below A. Most of these guys always... And now now people are telling well, you don't know how to run a business. They've never been told that they're unable to do something. I sat down with a... Chief medical officer one time, and she said, I want you to give me a grade so far how I'm doing as a leader. First couple years you've been coaching me. I said, no, you don't. She said, yeah, I, I want you to give me a grade. I said, like a letter grade? And she said, yeah, a letter grade. I said, okay, C minus. She, tears rolled down her <coughs> cheeks. This is, a grown, this is a grown adult. Yeah, grown adult, yeah. <clears throat> I've never been given a C in my life. I said, well, now you have. What are you going to do differently? I said, I, I'm on a different scale than what you're talking about. A C is not necessarily a bad score, but you're not ready to move up to a B or an A yet with regards to your leadership ability. You've got to grow. You've got to get better, continuously get better. You're not done. And so those are hard conversations that uh, oftentimes physicians don't understand. Many of, the, many of the executives I've coached are very humble. Uh, and they want to learn, uh, but it takes them some time to really, to really learn that. So you are talking about changing that financial model on them, and it's like, I don't have time for that. We just got to keep seeing patients we've got to figure out how to see more patients because we've got to make more money and it's it's really difficult for them to make that transition
0: if you had a look at like trajectory like in we're not it's crazy to me because like we're not getting healthier i mean some people are uh, in america i like to say like we have the extremes we i believe we have the fittest people like the freak shows who are obsessed with it and then the people who literally don't give a shit and then a huge chunk of people in the middle i've traveled around the world seen a lot of places typically the level of obesity is not as high as America is. I don't, I think, I believe we're number one, um, or pretty close. And the projections are, you know, pretty disgusting when you look at, if it's 10 years from now, they project like almost all people will be overweight. Hmm. And then the obesity is like, I believe hovering around like 50%. So it's about half everybody. So if you had to think like in 10 years, knowing, just knowing that in general, I don't know how that ship gets fixed because we have, more coaches, more fitness, more trackers. We have more everything we've ever had yet. Right. The lifestyle that we've created, this kind of go, go, go competitive thing, which I'm all for, it's swallowing people up and it's becoming so competitive. Things are so expensive. So knowing that stuff, like does the, the healthcare model look like in 10 years? Like, I don't imagine it gets way better or way more efficient. Maybe it does. What's the technology? I guess it could.
1: Uh, it's it's a great question. Uh, I have hope for the system. There are a lot of smart people working on them. I mean, you talk about you know some of the technology that exists, the artificial intelligence, providing the opportunities to uh, recognize sickness sooner and understand it better. And like
0: like where the text would like read scans and stuff, or some of these like AI can read you know, 10,000 things in a day where a person right. can do like a hundred. Well, so again,
1: it's so an oncologist, right? So, you know, I came from a company at IBM that had a, an oncology program where you're exactly right. They could read books. AI can read books a day on the best research has gone on over the world with regards to cancer treatment. One physician, one oncologist can read maybe two studies in a weekend where the system AI, where the technology is going is it'll bring them back. Here's the top eight ways that we've seen in all the research to treat these patients. Just pick one of the eight, because they're all pretty good. That's cool. Yeah, I mean that's so that 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 gives it hope. But again, it takes time to get there for one, uh, and it takes money. It takes money. So that's part of the that's part of the spending in the system, right? And so there's learning. We tend we are in a very innovative country, and that's why I believe that's one of the reasons we spend more than other countries do is because of our innovation in healthcare and some of the things that we do that are really cool. We just haven't figured out how to pay for them yet exactly. So we end up we end up putting it on the, the large Uh, Consumer overall and rising healthcare insurance costs and things like that. So I have have hope for the system. The second is again, you touched on it with regards whether it's fitness. I believe it exists in nutrition as well. You know, in the schools at a younger age and figuring out how to train kids, how to eat right uh, and how to eat the right foods and all those different things exist. And I think we're becoming we're we're coming up with the social programs to help support that better. Again, you got to be able to fund those social programs and show results with those. So I feel good about that. I had read an article when I was doing that population health way back when. Um, 85% of our health care, if you will, our our overall health happens outside the four walls of a physician's office or a hospital building. Yet 85% of the spending of the healthcare system goes into those four walls. Bricks and mortar building new hospitals, all the doctors, all the technology, all the robots that they're building. And so the mix has got to change, I believe. And I think it will. Uh and I do believe there's hope, you know, again, even industries like fitness impacting our healthcare. I had written this story myself ten years ago from a vision standpoint, a place just like this where your like primary care physician is just embedded in here for all of your um, you know, population that exists for your two hundred members that are here and they're getting their blood pressure taken while they're walking on the treadmill or while they're doing whatever they need to do, realizing you can't do that at a high elevated heart rate, but their care is like right in here where the best care can be provided, the work that you're doing, the nutrition that you're giving them, and not inside those walls. So a lot of, there's, there are people that talk about the future of the hospitals, that there is no hospital. It's these ambulatory surgery centers that are doing things. They're going to the homes and caring, going back to uh, the future, if you will, a little bit, and going back out into homes to treat. Or they show up at
0: people's houses yeah. and do... Yeah, it happens. I me. Mean, Medical
1: homes, yeah. I mean, it's happening again today because people can't get to their appointments for multiple reasons. One, they don't have a car they can drive. They don't have a family member that's there to serve them. They're in a wheelchair. And so they're sending, some of these places are sending them to the homes before they get so sick that they end up in the hospital for days and days and days.
0: That's gnarly, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's like kind of going backwards.
1: Yeah, it is going a little bit backward. To go forward. And it wasn't so wrong when it was done back then, but imagine having the monitoring capabilities on them at home to say, hey, they just fell down. We need to send somebody over there right now. Not just the, i fall fallen in, I can't get up and they call the phone system, but it sends a nurse over to their home and says, uh, you know, come in and, and uh, make a change there.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, it's it just seems like it's one of the systems where if you just could start it over from scratch and you didn't know anything, would you do it the same way? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the answer is like no. Right.
1: Is it like Henry Ford in the car? Yeah. If we would ask, you know, people what they wanted, they'd have said a faster
0: horse, right? Yeah. Okay. So if you okay. could just start over and like, hey, this is how we're going to kind of put this bad boy together. But it's crazy, too. And the, like, with the insurance companies, too, and the money that goes into things. And like there's a lot of – it just seems like it's a mess, man. Because we talked to so many doctors here, and I'm like, I feel – I just feel bad for them because I'm like, you guys have spent your life like doing this. And it just seems some are happy for sure. And I don't meant to say like they're not, but it just seems like you do a ton of work. You take on a lot of shit and you're in a, you're in a game that's rigged, man. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, I don't know if you can win it.
1: Hard to fix it yourself. We've got friends that are cardiologists and I've had uh, a CEO who was a former cardi cardiologist and I'm still friends with him. He's retired. And just, you know, some of the stories that he shares and, and how difficult that is on the journey, whether it's from a leadership perspective or an, or being able to execute in the system and make it more efficient. There's just so many barriers.
0: Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I have faith too. That'll mm-hmm. get better. Yeah. I, that's my, we have to, right? I, I mean, what, what's the other option? Exactly. Just be super sad about it. I'm like, <laughs> fuck, i hope I never get sick and have to go anywhere. <laughs> like all the people I've had here have been great. Just don't get sick on Friday. That's all. Yeah. Well, and the one thing I've learned too, uh, they're all just real people. Like everybody who works everywhere is a real person. And, as a young kid I was naive I didn't really understand that until I did this for a living and I get to work with everybody from you know here's an accountant here's an attorney here's a doctor here's a dentist here's a teacher we're all humans and they all go through the same shit and they all have the same stuff going on and they all have a breaking point too man like except their their fuck-ups are just a bigger deal than like if I told you to do you know, a bear crawl instead of a jumping jack. It really doesn't matter. You're not going to die where when they kind of have a breakdown and they're overrun, like your the decisions they're making, they're, it just carries a lot more weight basically. Absolutely. Um, so we touched on, do we touch on your population health? Trump,
1: hey, yeah, we, I mean, touch on all the points I think in terms of being in there, the financial model, the interoperability and you know, overall, I think the education system is really struggling as well, how they train them. So you got, I mean, if you're going to educate how you're going to change the system, you got to change the way you educate physicians. 12 years is too long coming out with millions of dollars in, and debt to be a physician they people aren't willing to accept
0: that anymore. Well, it's hard because they are not, how do I say this? You graduate and you're a doctor, but you're not really a doctor yet. And what I mean is you're don't, you're not making doctor money Mm -hmm. because you have this weight around your neck that is just dragging you down. Like we have friends that are, uh, ER physicians. We have friends that are anesthesiologists and some of them, have been able to get rid of the student loans at a relatively young age. Some of them not, and they're trying, but when you hear them, and this is real shit, Hey, my minimum student loan payment a month is $6,000. Now they're making more money than you probably make, you know, teach in third grade public school. However, they're not really, cru- imagine like you're crushing it, but every month, like six K goes to the student loan, like your money goes down really quick. And so it's like, they're not reaping the financial rewards of it, but they're stuck in the system where they have to do it. There's no lane they can go through, and you've given up a decade plus of your life to do it. And that's more. Again, this is just my two cents, and this is not to do with healthcare. You have the federal government, like really. I mean, they're guaranteeing these student loans. And if if I knew that, if if the if they said, hey, we're going to guarantee gym memberships no matter what, I as a capitalist, would raise memberships in perpetuity because why the fuck would I not? I'm going to get paid no matter what. That's what the schools are doing. I'm not a fan of it. I don't think it's right. I go from a business standpoint, the schools are dumb if they don't do it because they can build more buildings. They can hire, but I get how it works. Yet you put the onus on the student who's already probably super stressed because their job is stressful. Now they have to pay student loans till they're 50 years old, which is crazy to me.
1: Which means they don't have any money to put down on a house either and buy a house. And so they're you know, leveraging that to the health. They're giving them you know, no no money down loans. Uh, and they're buying big houses because they're banking on the money they're gonna make in the future. I mean the financial companies are letting that happen at times. Um, I'm not again, I'm not flawing the financial companies for that, but you know, they they have the debt of the education system, they have the debt of a home, and and as you said, they have a stressful
0: job. He's got a lot of stuff to fix, man. hmm I'm not smart enough to do it. Stay in fitness. Yeah, that's just, I just blow my lane. Dude. <laughs> I, I do think if they if they stop federally guaranteeing the student loans, it, it would drive these prices down drastically, and I think that would help everybody. So these guys could get a cheaper education and you would drive smarter people to do it. And the reason I say it is because, like, if I – and I'll stop talking about this in a second, but it, it fucking pisses me off. Now I'm all worked up. So if you think about it, if I want to go to college today, let's say I want to go back today and get a, a different advanced degree, they'll they'll give it to me. Uh, Jeremy, what do you want to do? I'll just pick some random shit. I want another degree in education. Cool, dude. We'll give you thirty grand a year. Totally cool. Um, Your rate is 5% and just pay it back like when you're 90. Nobody will give a shit. No questions asked. Honestly, if I probably want to just enroll in a different undergrad program, they wouldn't even ask me. And they'll just let me take some credits and do whatever. Now, if I, at let's say 26, say I want to start a business, I need $10,000. I probably need two people to co sign for me. I need uh, a business plan and I probably have to have them put a lien on my house or something just to get 10 grand to start a business. But I could get 100 grand for school and pick a major that's like fucking painting. Do, does people see the fundamental problem and how crazy that shit is? So if we flipped it and said, okay, you have to get the loan from Wells Fargo for your medical school, well, now we're probably going to make sure you're the person who can actually do it or you really have a plan. And the, again, I could talk about this. The whole system is kind of jacked because at 18 you're picking what you want to do when you're 40, which seems you're not even the same human. Like you're literally a different person. Yeah. That's the path we're on. We get in debt for this and now we carry it like a weight the rest of our lives, which makes our job and everything else harder. But (sighs) it drives me nuts. Here we are. I didn't mean to drive it there. No. No, you're good. Um, so in the consulting work that you've done, um, is there any, like, is there common trends you see? Um, with the most like kind of successful, like CEOs and physicians and and the people you you've worked with, like is there a couple traits that maybe they kind of share? I mean, or is there anybody you just found is like super lazy and they got lucky a thousand times and they just happened to be like running the hospital?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's. I don't know that it's laziness in terms of in terms of making that happen. Certainly, there are individuals that when you go in and start coaching them, you're not real sure how they ended up in that seat, and that's okay trends we would talk about, trends I would talk about in terms of my teaching, in terms of how successful leaders, regardless of the industry, whether it's in healthcare, manufacturing, financial services, whatever it is, uh, that, are, that are embarking on a transformation that they want to truly you know, become uh, a world-class organization. We, we, we did some research as a company several years back, and it came down to what we refer to as three drives, the drive for continuous improvement. So ultimately, a healthy discontent with the status quo. And what, what they, were, they were really saying, I, I still need to get better. I hadn't reached a certain point. I was there, and I'm not worried about it anymore. They had to have that healthy discontent. They had to have drive for disciplined execution. And when I talk about discipline, you know, it's very much like it is here in terms of the discipline you talk inside the trainer's office. If you say you want to have a, a, a healthy body, but you only come in once every three weeks, that's not the th- type of discipline that you need. you got to be in here on a regular basis when you need to do it, Even when you don't feel like doing it, you got to be there to make that happen. So those, those leaders have that discipline execution that they're able to carry out. And then the third thing is their drive for coaching and mentoring. Uh, Many leaders don't quite understand in those organizations, the need to develop their people at a level they've never been developed as well. So again, that becomes a a tough battle for them where they say, well, what if I develop the people And, and they leave? And ultimately the response is, what if you don't develop them and they stay? I mean, oh, I've heard you know, that before. I yeah. mean, it, 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 there's, a, there's a challenge that, that exists within that, but we're trying to raise the lid on the, on the leadership of those C-suite individuals, the CEO, the CMO, the COO, and we do that by getting them to really focus on, again, many things we talk about inside of, inside of fitness or inside of health. What are the most important metrics that are, that are you know, important to you today? What are the disciplines you need to put in place to drive that and measure that, create a dashboard and measure that and hold people accountable to get those things done? So, But those, those are the three things that we identified in successful C-suite or leaders. Really, again, doesn't matter the size of the organization in terms of growing and hitting the goals and making things better.
0: Well, it's tough for people, too, because a lot of times like you can do things for yourself, but it doesn't mean you can do it for other people. Like I have my own system, which would be terrible for almost every other human who's not me because I just think it would be a miserable life. I can give whatever pieces of wisdom I can, but that is a different skill. And I'm not arrogant enough to be like, I can manage a team of 100 people. That would drive me fucking <laughs> nuts, dude. There's no, I can barely handle a handful of personalities. And the most of the people I work with are super cool. And even that, sometimes I'm going home and I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? But these guys are responsible doing it at like a super high level. And I guess you have to, I guess I, the point I'm driving at is you have to kind of have a, probably a beginner's mindset, even though like you are running an organization or you're the CEO, CMO, CFO, but be willing to be like, you know what, I'm great at this thing, but I can be better at actually trying to make other people better, which is a different skill altogether.
1: I think it is. But there's also what you said, a humility that you talked about as well, is that I have to be humble enough to know I don't know it all. And I got to put in organizations like that, large, large organizations, I've got to put people around me that are smarter than me. You know, that again, many quotes, <clears throat> if you're sitting in a room and you're the smartest person in the room, you need to change rooms True. Uh, so you can learn and grow. But in, in talking with some of those leaders, again, the, some of the quotes just start to flow out. I started a mastermind with uh, my brother and, and two friends, Dave and John. And we, we talked about, you know, it's called, we call it raise the average. You're the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And you've got to find people that are like you in that space that will motivate you, that will hold you accountable, that will challenge you when you're not on the right path. And you know, developing other leaders, you're, you're, I think you are right to a certain extent. You could still develop that muscle if you, if you wanted to, if you chose to. Um, my guess is you're, you're really smart enough to do that. But in an organization that's got 5,000 employees, you better be ready to delegate some responsibility in the organization uh, so that in a $2 billion healthcare system, some people can make decisions when they need to. That's for sure.
0: Well, yeah, and I think if you're willing to have, like, complementary people around you and be willing to be like, you know what? And again, I'm not saying like you to be, you're terrible at stuff. Like you can be competent in a skill, but have someone on your team who is ten thousand times better. Why would I not have them do it versus myself and try to be the jack of all trades kind of master of none thing? Where you know, I guess that's ego. For some people, they think like, "Well, I can do it all." And like, I learned early on, I'm like, I suck at a lot of stuff. And like, let me just get around people who are <laughs> who are better than me. Like, I've learned most of the things here, but I'm just not. I don't again. Most of it comes down to the success for me personally. If I like to do it, I'm pretty good at it. If I don't like to do it, I don't really give a shit and I don't spend that much time on it and I kind of just do the bare minimum, which is not a great, it's not a great for anybody. So if you can delegate it to someone who shines, like why would you not, right?
1: Right, exactly, absolutely.
0: And you have a thing, like a motto, kind of everybody needs a coach, whether it's like fitness or business. Um, And you kind of talk through these like, is it 7Fs?
1: The 7Fs, right.
0: Yeah, what, that, um, what does that look like for people who are listening?
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> the 7Fs for me, and it's a lot like the success wheel that you've used in the past, so I believe that uh, the most successful individual uh, is going to be successful as, as a whole person. And the 7Fs that I talk about in the, in the coaching that I do for Growing Champions are, I had to force one of them in there, but it's faith, finances, fitness, family, friendship, fun, and future. Uh, see, I had it because I, I couldn't think of a better word for career or the work that you do. Oh, but yeah. you bear fruit in your work, this future. And, you know, what are you doing uh, in the in the work? What do you see yourself going in five years? And I have individuals really kind of assess themselves in each of those seven areas. And not that they have to be perfect in each of those seven areas because I believe at different points in your life, you're going to have different focuses No doubt about it. And you can't focus on all seven things at once. There's no way you could be effective at all of those things. But in terms of co- the individuals that I coach, I look for – where they're struggling the most and try to do an assessment in that area and then have them develop, really the articulated future state of what that looks like. So for fitness, it might be health, it might be, excuse me, fitness, it might be weight, uh, it might be body fat, it might be something like that. But more importantly than that metric of that future state, what they see, it could be that I you know, feel really good in, in, in these clothes that I, want, that I used to wear when I was 25 years old, I don't know what that is, but what are the disciplines? What are you, what are you willing to do to get to that point with regards to that goal. And almost as importantly, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice to be able to achieve that goal as well? You you use the uh, term as well. You I've had listened to your podcast a couple of times on the amount of sacrifice to get to a certain body fat percentage and what you have to do to really get there. Oh yeah. And is the juice worth the squeeze, as you would say, to get there? And for me, 7% body fat is not worth the squeeze for me. I still like to have a beer every once in a while. I still like to eat a cheeseburger. Be a normal human. Yeah, I want to be a normal human, absolutely. So I'll settle with with where I am in terms of that journey. But the the leaders that are most successful have that whole person approach. If you focus all of your energy just on your work or just on your career uh, for too long of a period of time, there's other things that are going to start to fall off. And so I just believe those things are – those seven areas, those seven Fs are a big part of what I often refer to at a higher level as the greatest story ever told. And what I really reviewed that is if someone's sitting in a room and whether it's a, they're in a class or they're in a, a seminar or whatever it is, and they ask uh, the name of the you know last five Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVPs and you get 60 seconds to figure it out, not many people who don't know everything about sports are going to be able to figure that out or say, what well, are you know, the last five Oscar winners for best actor? And they're just not going to know that. No. But and that's, that's just – I mean, that's like only over a five-year period. But if you ask them – and you give them the same amount of time to say, write, write the name of five individuals who have had a positive impact on your life. Like, you write that down quicker. And that, that's the, to me, when somebody writes your name on their list, that's the greatest story ever told, is that you've made an impact. And those individuals who are balanced in those seven Fs have the chance to be uncommon uh, and, and really uh, make a difference in the lives of others. And, and write the greatest story ever told. For
0: me, that's, that's really what it's all about. And when you're working with these guys, like, over time, the people you, you tend to see who are the most successful or well-rounded, these guys have invested in, like, some kind of coaching or personal development at some point? Or is there some people who's like, you just meet the anomaly, who's like, you know what, I know everything, I'm a genius. But I'm assuming that really doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, I don't know if Elon Musk has a coach or not. I don't know. In terms of a life coach, it's hard to tell. He's got his own ways, no doubt about it. But I believe that this is something that I actually learned through – fitness and where I went on my journey is that I tried to make myself healthy, healthy for a long time by reading and doing some certain things and I couldn't get there. And I didn't have the ability to get myself to the level I wanted to get to. So I, I inscribed, or I signed up for a coach back in 2004. You know, this, this is how I ended up actually in this room right here. I was in uh, Phoenix back in 2004, my wife and I were at a dinner uh, at the Phoenician, uh, which was a really cool spot. It's a, Mar- it's a Marriott now. It's a Marriott now. It's a great property. And <clears throat> I, uh, the button popped off my jeans uh, that I was wearing. I had 30, oh, no thirty-eight jeans on. My button popped off. While I'm having dinner. <clears throat> what did you weigh back then? Uh, I was two sixty. No shit. Man, you're tall though. 6'3". Well, that, that's what everybody used to tell me. I'm 6'3". It's um, still
0: it's still big though. Yeah.
1: What they used to say, John, you just you're tall, man. You just carry it well. I'm like, this was I spent 15 years with that, and I'm like. Now that I I am where I am now on top of that journey a little bit, um, you guys you were lying to me. I was fat, and you just didn't you know you were lying to me. You got to get the you, and, gotta,
0: you got the wrong friends.
1: Yeah, and my well exactly right. So you change your friends. <clears throat> you can't change your family. You can change your friends. There's those accounts again, uh, because, uh, you know, m- when I look back on pictures now, my wife and I talk about. She says I didn't realize how sick you were then. I was probably two twenty five when we got married. Okay, and I and I you know, uh, just I had no, uh, fitness life whatsoever I'd play basketball on Monday nights I was about eight, and I don't know how I didn't have a heart attack doing that but
0: and how old do you know 53 53 so what were you when did you get to like 260 like how did like what's that progression
1: well it was a couple of times so I was at 260 when I was let's see early 30s 31 32 years old no shit yeah and then uh um, like
0: we were just drinking beer and shit
1: oh eating whatever I wanted I had no I had no yeah I mean, there was nothing cheese, cheeseburger, French fry. I hadn't met cheesecake all going along with it. I didn't know what, I didn't know what calories were in terms of what that went. So that's, but that's the story. I was about 33, 2004. I would have been 35 years old. I was two sixty, and I popped the, I popped the button on my jeans, thirty-eights, and I saw, oh, I'm okay. I'll go get forties. I, I don't look too bad in forties. And I was on the airplane. I went home reading a magazine that talked about a trainer uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I said, I, I need to go see this guy. For a personal fitness professionals, I'll never forget it. And I walked in. The, I walked in the day and, he, and uh, put myself on a scale at 260. And he says, "You ready? You ready to do this?" I said, "Yeah, I'm ready." He says, "What's your goal?" I said, "I don't know. What do you think? 235? That sounds pretty good." He says, "How about 210?" I said, "Oh, okay. I see how this works." I said, "How about 230?" He said, <laughs> "How about 210?" I said, "Oh, you're, you're not negotiating no, with me. This is uh, it." Yeah, he's like, "This is where you need to be." And so I, I went on a journey with them for about a year and a half. Got to 212. Uh, but I still, I didn't learn how to be healthy, uh, in that I learned how to exercise my way through it. I was young enough to,
0: uh,
1: out exercise a bad diet
0: and you're still not eating great.
1: And I'm still at that point, I'm still not eating great. I mean, I was doing some protein drinks in the morning for breakfast instead of big biscuits or something like that, but I was still eating too much at night and desserts and drinking and all that good stuff and all that bad stuff, depending on how you look at it. And so it was, uh, 2015, two things happened. One in, uh, June, I had the neck surgery, uh, neck fusion. And that was, you know, for years, I had a bulging disc. It was bulging into my uh, spinal cord. So at that time, 2015, I'm only 47 years old. And at that point, I, had, I used that as an excuse. Now I can't exercise anymore because I can't lift weights. I got a neck problem, all this. Can't run because of neck problem. And then in August, I had a, I had a health scare, uh, my blood pressure shot up around 185, over 140 or something like that while I was at home. It's legit. And my wife said, we were supposed to go to a concert that night. I said, I know the boys are going to be disappointed. I said, but I actually think I should go to the doctor right now. And she took me over there, and they wanted to put me in an ambulance. So I said, you're not putting me in an ambulance. I'll go to the emergency room. But um, my wife will drive me to the – You know, so I, I had my ego going there. Yeah. And it eventually came back down as I sat there. They never really find anything major. Uh, but those two incidents in 2015 – you know, were big for me. I didn't, it didn't change me. January 14th, 2017, I walked into the trainer's building. I said, if I'm going to do this, I got to have a trainer. I couldn't get, I got down around 252 on my own, 260 to 252.
0: So you went down to 212 and then I'm, got back to? Back to
1: 260. Okay. Went down to 252 on my own over about six or eight months when I said I had to get healthy. I yeah. said, this isn't working. I, I got to have, I got to have somebody who's going to kick my tail uh, to make that happen. I wasn't ready to make that transition on my own. And I walked into the Uh, office of 180 fitness I had driven by it for 15 years when we lived in Roanoke Virginia and Margot Bellinger picked me up as I walked through the door and she said what are you here for I said I need to get better I'm sick and sick sick and tired of being sick and tired and she was gonna be my trainer for the next four years she still connected with me now in terms of Instagram because we left in Virginia and moved to South Carolina but her dad had passed away at 44 of a heart attack she said you got to do something different so we went from 252 to 235 in about three months nice and I plateaued for three months. I said, Margo, I said, I can't, I can't do this. I'm working my tail off with you and I'm not losing any more weight. She said, oh, it's gonna get real now. What are you eating? And I started to take her through my diet. I still did not changed my diet. She just laughed in my face. And she said, it's time to start uh, making changes. And I made one small change. That was the hashtag it was stop eating french fries. So she said, just replace french fries with some uh, vegetables on your plate with a dinner. Don't worry about anything else she had Just, just replace that one thing for now. And it led me to the other hashtag I told you about Fat Boy Friday. So. I had this red Nike shirt. I was really proud that I could wear. It was a large, large, tall. Take like your tiger. Th- your Tiger Woods. Yeah, my Tiger Woods red red workout shirt. Yeah, and I, I look back on that now. See some of the pictures. Like holy cow, two thirty five. I was still fat as I'll get out. But I called it Fat Boy Friday from the day I started that. Stop eating French fries. And then she started teaching me nutrition things. I was taking the same picture every Friday, and seeing some of the. And within a matter of about twelve weeks, I was a two eighteen. And I'm like, whoa, this. I was actually. And we actually started talking about what about 200. So I said, do you think I can get to 200? And uh, she said, yeah, you can. You're gonna have to make some bigger nutrition changes, but you can get there at 200. So I went there, and then that that's how you know again Phoenix here back. Um, I saw your article, in Men's Health magazine on bicep a bicep workout. So I was trying to train. It was I don't know what year it had to be 2018, whatever it was. Yeah. And so I read that. I said, let me follow this guy on Instagram. She so was like, and start started to see some of your workouts, and I. Hooked up with the 47-day transformation in 2019, while I was traveling like crazy, I was going to Saudi Arabia. I was going to other places. But actually, Saudi Arabia made it easier in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, because you can't drink over there. It's illegal. Alcohol is illegal. Oh no shit! Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, and you can get it at the at the Air Force Base or at the um, not the Air Force Base, but the. Uh, Oh shoot! Anyway, you you can go on to the to the site there and buy bottles of liquor at the U.S. embassy at the U.S. embassy. But not in the hotel. Not in hotels. Nowhere. You couldn't. It was. Yeah. There's no. There's no alcohol. That's still a rule. Yes, 2019. That's crazy. I mean, just it was just 2020 when they started allowing women to drive over there. But that's a whole different conversation. Fuck, dude. That's so. I did have. I had a Budweiser uh, non-alcoholic over there, and. I'm like that was the worst thing I ever tasted in my life. I mean, that would have if, if regular beer would have tasted like that, it probably would have made me quit drinking beer. But <laughs> yeah, um, so I, I finished the 47 day transformation while I was in Saudi Arabia. And I'm eating you know camel and stuff like that. I mean, all kind of pro, whatever protein I can get my hands on over there in that, in that world. Yeah, and I came back and I was 179. I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, I couldn't believe I hadn't seen 179 since I was 15 years old, maybe. That's crazy. And I was, and I so by then 2019, I would have just, I uh, was just 50. So I turned fifty in 2018, and uh, November 2018, like I, I didn't think there was any way I could do that. And I, t- I remember taking the pictures with 47 Day Transformation in the afters, and like it was good that I, I still lost another, you know, 20, 23 pounds or something during that 47 days, really taking it serious. And uh, but I looked really bad. I was actually too skinny. People were asking me if I was sick. So I went the other way. Oh, yeah. I went. But part of that is at 50 years old. I mean, those who's listening, when you, when you wait till you're 47 48 to do that when you lose that much weight like stuff doesn't go back where it's supposed to go anymore it just doesn't work so yeah um, they have to have surgery to fix that if you want to which I haven't so uh, but uh, it was um you know that was quite a journey and then you know from from that point forward really for me it was all about uh learning to enjoy things that I like to be, be a human being uh so I, you know, I still like to I still like to drink beer I still like to what's your beer I'm a yeah. cheap beer drinker, Michelob Ultra, So that's my really, best. yeah.
0: Oh, it's like water, dude.
1: I know. Well, that's. I mean, that's part of. What is the, the What's the
0: Miller Lights thing now? It's only one more calorie. Miller Lite sucks too. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Miller Lite. I, mean, I don't. Um, if I'm gonna do, I'm not. I'm not advocating people to drink booze. But if you're gonna do it, like, enjoy it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. what the fuck? Uh, I gotcha. I'm trying to think. What do we? Because like, there's so many. It's too. Like, it's. I'm so confused now. But that's so. They're so deep. Like I remember as a kid, there's probably like ten beers. Now there's twenty five local beers oh, just yeah. in Scottsdale. Right. I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, I'll just take a Stella. Like, what's call it called today? There are some places we go to, like Scottsdale has a, like Scottsdale Brewing Company has a good place in Cornell. There's places we do, and like, but again, they're all, they're all similar. But if I'm gonna have a beer, I'm like, I can't like. It can't be water. I know. I had a Scottsdale blonde while I was
1: here. The, They're this, good. Uh, yeah, I was in town, so I did have one of those. We have those
0: out. at our house. Yeah. There's this place called Salty Crew, which is at a Coronado Brewing Company. Both those and like a Stella. It's probably only three we keep at our house, but Scottsdale Blonde is legit. Those mm-hmm. are like that's again, that's not terrible for you. It's so much better than like a Michelob Ultra. No offense, Michelob Ultra. It's great. <laughs> well, they try to make it like it's like a fit beer. I'm like, it's a one calorie. Well,
1: actually, my son came in. He's about well, fit beer. so We we bought the uh, actually when we got into town here, we went to the the Circle K. And we got in late. And I saw these Bud Light zero carb things. It actually said it actually said beer. Uh, it's like it a seltzer or carb. something. Yeah, it was much like it was absolutely a seltzer, but they actually called it beer and it had zero carbs in it. You know, yeah, like zero carbs. Let me try it. it. was horrible. Trash. It was horrendous. Yeah. I've
0: never drank like a White Claw or any of that. Like this seems gross to me. Like I'm out of fruity. I don't like any of that shit. I'm like, if I'm gonna drink booze, like I'm just gonna drink booze. My man, beer, whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like Probably. a bourbon.
1: I like a Woodf- Woodford's my bourbon. It's not a go-to. I mean, I have a bourbon maybe once a month or something like that to sit down and just have
0: have it neat. Oh, I got a dude here, Dennis. Shout out to Dennis. He just left. Um, we do gifts for, like, the Sunday Metcons. Some of the guys don't drink. Well, I don't know exactly what they drink. Some of them don't. Some of them do drink whiskey, so I'll buy them all these whiskeys. I have the whiskeys lined up. I have Post-its on it with their names. He knows every bottle. That's even The label's covered up. He can't even see it, but he just knows. down to a T. I'm like, this dude. He knows his shit, man. That's different. But I was just curious. That is different. Yeah, I was just curious. That is different. So what um what does the fitness routine look like now? Like uh like over 50 compared to maybe when you're, you know, you were doing it you know, I don't know if you took it serious when you were in your 20s, but obviously when you're in your 30s and you're like I got 80 pounds to lose, fuck, let's do it. Does the training look way different now, you know, being 50 plus versus like
1: 35? 30s it it did look different. It was more certainly heavier weight and we were doing, you know, we we're doing dead, uh, barbell deadlifts and barbell squats and pieces like that. And not, not that I didn't, not that I didn't like that. It, it worked for me at the time, but, it, and it, for now, for me, it's more repetition than anything else and less about, you know, doing three or four reps of something. And that's, that's probably even as I continue to progress on my journey. So I'm, I'm in the gym. Uh, i'd like to be in the gym three days a week if not and then one day on the weekend so saturday if i'm if i'm at home office i'll get there four days a week if i'm traveling i travel two weeks a month uh to the hotels and i make sure i get to the hotels you travel that much still two weeks a month there
0: what so i
1: have the i have a client in illinois and a client in stockton california that oh, so you're going all across the country yeah
0: where do you stay at usually like a select service or something like that?
1: Stockton, I'm at a in a Hilton that's there. And in, I mean, in, in Sterling, Illinois, there's not a whole lot there. The, the nicest place is the Holiday Inn Express. So it works out. That, okay. Before
0: I met my wife, that was like the nicest yeah. place I'd ever been. I'm like, this is the shit. I know, right? <laughs> and then she like took me to the Ritz-Carlton. And I'm yeah. like, oh, Holiday Inn <laughs> Express sucks, dude. Yeah. Uh, but they have like a gym there, probably?
1: Yeah, they have a gym both places. I mean, they both work out pretty good. They got dumbbells and uh, the, one in, the one in Stockton has kettlebells. So I mean, it works out pretty good. Oh, nice, dude. And you know, for me it's again I've always uh, certainly in the past few years appreciate the content that you put out there on Instagram and I've I've done the 50 day and I've done the, done a bunch the of mobility stuff. I've done a bunch of the stuff but I've stayed you know obviously following the Instagram and some of those workouts that you do on there and I just you know I take it 60% of whatever you put on there normally in terms of weight or in terms of oh yeah and you know, some of the repetitions that that keep me going but I use those workouts you know on a regular basis I have five books of all the workouts I've done since January 14th 2017 and I'll go back to them and I'll See if I do another one just to see if I can progress. Oh, nothing nice, like dude. nothing like trying to put an eighty pound jacket on, which Mar Margot did this to me, uh three years into my journey <clears throat> and do the same workout that I did the first day I was with her with an eighty pound vest.
0: Oh bro, oh, the
1: yeah. worst. Oh my gosh. It was it was absolutely ridiculous. I'm like, and I was carrying this eighty pounds uh through that journey. So it's crazy
0: 'cause this one, I think this one on my seat right here, it's a hyper vest, I think that's twenty pounds dude you're di- I'm dying <laughs> like you're doing jumping jacks with a 20 pound weight vest on it's su- like you can still do pull-ups and push-ups but it sucks dude mm-hmm. that's 20 i couldn't imagine doing four times that
1: yeah i mean it wasn't anything that was really hard But I mean, a few step few step ups and things like that so that first day she was easing me into it uh, but to still put an 80 pound vest on and then try to do it again was was quite interesting to say the least so and i'm mean, so that's you know, that's four days a week for me and then the other days i try to stay active and wife and i will walk through the neighborhood or whatever you gotta do walk the dog walk through the neighborhood try to get her 10,000 steps in every day, even when don't work out. So it's an important part of what I do, no doubt about it.
0: And what, um, like food wise, like what does the the eating progression look like from cheeseburger and fries and Mm -hmm. beer every day to like, what is the kind of, what does a normal week look like? I mean, the traveling part, I mean, my wife has been like everywhere this last week, like from Utah to back to Arizona to Nashville, then back to here. And it just, it crushes you. Like, unless you're super dedicated and diligent so with the and I think the food is the harder piece than the training when you travel. Cause if you're a workout person, like you're gonna do it. But to make a good food choice when you're stuck somewhere, like it does get tough. So
1: the food the food before forty seven, before all the transition on yeah. especially on traveling. I used to do three weeks a month at, or yeah, three weeks a month of travel. Dude, it's crazy you're not really like, like
0: it's crazy you're not like four hundred pounds.
1: And so, you know, that was hotel food, you know, two martinis, four beers, whatever it was. Like every night. I mean you come home from the office and then you go down to the hotel and burger and fries or whatever that was uh the the nutrition on the travel now is get in on sunday evening and either sunday evening if i don't get in too late or monday evening is to the grocery store and buying turkey and stuff like that and taking it to the hotel refrigerator and eating every night in the refrigerator out of the refrigerator turkey cottage cheese and things like that for for my meals lunches are still a little bit difficult and but i'll you know if if lunches get really bad at the client site then i also travel with the protein bar so fit crunch sends me one that i like i like I like a good bit, the Power Crunch Bar, and I'll travel with ten or twelve of those to make sure that I uh, can supplement or or you know defer some of the meals that they have. And again, I'll still I'll still have a good lunch every once in a while, especially if they bring in donuts or something like that. They're pretty good. But.
0: And like you're, these are still like, is it like with clients and stuff. And do they dictate where you go typically?
1: Uh, the well, the lunch we usually bring it in during okay. the day, so they they bring it in, like cater it or whatever. tacos or you know whatever, and so oh, you geez. eat the inside of the tacos and things like that versus. Some of the things that are there, so I try to I try to really make the good choices in terms of how I eat that, or I'll ask them specifically for salads instead of the heavy pasta, especially like, at lunchtime.
0: Do they look at you like you're weird when you sort of do healthy people <coughs> shit? I actually think it's actually
1: gone the other way. I I have uh, consulting clients. That would be my consulting clients, not necessarily coaching, but consulting clients who have made transformations as a result of some of the behaviors that I would model when I'd be on site with them. That's They'd cool. actually see it. And, and you know, you're showing pictures of before and after, and like what I was before. That was the other side, back, you know, going back in those years. I'm like, I'm coaching people to be disciplined in life, yet here I am, a, uh, a big old fat 6'3 guy who keeps being told I'm just on the edge. I need to start doing some of this stuff on my own as well if I'm going to grow myself.
0: Well, because you already had the skill, mm-hmm. you just weren't using it right. for that thing, which yep. it was always there. Exactly. You just transferred over.
1: And then uh, I think it's probably the biggest one again, probably got this. Uh, from from listening to you and and reading things as well is the uh time based eating and i f is the easiest intermittent fasting but intermittent fasting sounds like a diet but i I don't eat breakfast anymore, but I love breakfast food me too uh so but i never you know, I, eat breakfast 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 for dinner is really good we'll do that at home a good bit you know scrambled eggs and bacon and and uh you know hash browns once in a while for uh for dinner uh, so I still enjoy that food
0: well that's like the one thing where if you do travel and I don't like you do way more than me. It seems I would be miserable. I would not be this fit. There's no way. Um, I don't know. It's tough. I want to say that, but I'm like, I would try, but it would just suck. Anyways, I think when you're going places, even if you have to stop at like a place like no offense to Denny's, it's not the greatest (laughs) place in the world, but if you always get just eggs and bacon and those things, they're generally all kind of the same. So breakfast food for people, if you have options like that, I do think it's probably the easiest thing not to fuck up because it won't taste like trash and you can kind of still stay on track.
1: As I in my last week in Sterling, Illinois, I figured out something else to do because it's kind of the Holiday Inn Express like Hampton into me, so I tend to be a Hilton uh, from a point standpoint, and I'm not that dedicated to them, but they have the little breakfast with the omelets, pre-made omelets and the sausage links or the bacon and uh, that are available in the mornings. I'm like, I don't eat breakfast anymore, and they don't have dinner at night like that, so... I'll go down and I'll make my plate of breakfast stuff and I'll come back and stuff it in the fridge and then have it for dinner when I come back, heat it up in the microwave, so it works out pretty good. It's hard to find something really good in Sterling, Illinois. I I used to even think like Subway was healthy. You can do a salad at Subway for a while, but it's rough. Uh, And it's it's County Macros is big, so the Lose It app is really important to me or the MyFitnessPal type app, tracking what I eat. Macros... Uh, I don't. I'm not religious on macros. I try to watch them, and behave with them, things like that. But
0: but you're you, you know now. Yeah, like I know now. When you exactly. look at stuff, you're like, this is probably again. I'm not saying like if you're super neurotic and you have an eating disorder, obviously don't you know track this stuff and, and do its best for your mental health. But. For a lot of people, the education piece—just doing it like once or twice for an extended period of time—now you kind of know a banana is this. You kind of know a chicken is this, and you just start to understand mm-hmm. what each food group is. And so, like now, you kind of have a system.
1: Right. Exactly. And so, I think that's been that's been a big, big change for me. And so, I don't have to say stop eating French fries anymore. Although I still I'll, I'll enjoy them once in a while. I mean, that's it, that's that's the thing that I've learned as well is that if I have them one night and they can semi fit into the macros and i can make an adjustment the next day or next couple of days it doesn't bother me at all
0: it's crazy there's a place well sprouts is here you've been to sprouts before mm-hmm. yeah so sprouts now i don't know if it's the sprouts brand uh we just got an air fryer which i would never had one. First of all they're pretty sweet um i'm an idiot so i'm still learning how to use it but uh they make these french fries at sprouts where it's either you know normal like traditional cut french fries crinkle cut or sweet potato fries but it's only one ingredient it's just potatoes there's no salt there's Mm. no oil there's nothing and it's and again do they taste like you know five guys uh no they don't but if you put salt and pepper on them like they're pretty dope and there's no oils on them and so now you're basically just eating potatoes and to me with like the ketchup we use or whatever like it mimics it's as close as i'm gonna get for the most part unless i'm gonna go out and just eat it and i don't feel like as dehydrated and as crazy and i don't feel like as big of an asshole when i eat those so there is a kind of workarounds too which is helpful so i've been doing that lately too air
1: bit. fryer i think they just named it wrong it took me a few years to actually buy one too because it said fryer and i, I wasn't really sure exactly what that meant but we, we have one we my wife and i use the air fryer pretty regular
0: yeah it just makes them because in the oven they kind of suck yep at least to me and they're a little bit crispier that way i just did some last night i'm like these are actually pretty good mm-hmm. uh If you're used to eating McDonald's, you're going to be disappointed. It's it's a gradual, gradual progression.
1: Well, that's rental food there, though, McDonald's or something like that. So it doesn't stay with you very long.
0: Um, Is there anything like you wish you would have done maybe like when you're younger um, in terms of like your physical body? Like, hey, if I knew what I knew now, this is what I would have done at, you know, 30, whether it be training style, eating, mobility, any of the mix.
1: Well, for me, it would have had to been on the on the eating side because I I really had no filter when it came to eating. I mean, there was nothing that I wasn't did you to did do you did you
0: never felt shitty or just didn't know? Oh,
1: I always felt crappy. I mean, I went through the uh, the process again, still later on in life, probably mid forties. of I would track the food that I ate, rather than not tracking for calories but I would track it for how long it took to go through my system. It really messed me up. I'm like, well, I can't go back to that restaurant. So I'd say I can't go back to that restaurant because it only took it 30 minutes to go through my system, and that was a horrible yeah. experience. So I, I certainly would have changed eating habits a long time ago. And this, you know, uh, I mean, look, when I, I played basketball and football in high school. I was never really uh, a lifter in terms of, in terms of fitness. Uh, for me, basketball, you know, you, you talk about – uh, Jordan and my guy was Larry Bird in terms of going through, so I, I couldn't oh, yeah. jump either. But I could take the I could check the, the jumper like like Bird could, and uh, he uh, you know. But I come home and uh, my parents were both still working, and so I throw a frozen pizza in the oven. That was before the game kind of thing. You throw a frozen pizza and have that, and that was five days a week. I was eating frozen pizzas and things like Pop Tarts for breakfast and all those different things. And it was always just whatever was convenient. same shit here, yeah. And so uh, you know, I don't know that those habits at a very young age would have been, but certainly. The first time I made the transition when I lost, when I got down to 212, if I'd have known, if I'd have known more about nutrition, I think, um, you know, I don't know what would have been different necessarily. I think we're here for a reason uh, in a lot of different ways, but I certainly would have felt better. I mean, yeah, I, I did. There's no doubt, as I said on that day, January 14th, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I used to get sick all the time, sinus infections and colds. And, and I mean, I just, I don't get as sick as I used to. And they just they just don't happen. And I'm not, like, knock on wood, I'm, yeah, they can hear that. But
0: uh, well, when you're in it though, it's like, do you even you don't really know what you're missing because it's like you don't know what feeling really just, good
1: just feels. Work. Feel like that's the way it's supposed to be, right? In terms, I mean, my dad was a big guy, no doubt about it. I'm like, I guess this is my genetics, is I'm going to be a big guy. I was way off, way off with that. I mean, you've talked about this before, and it was something I've used in training. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the next best time is right now to make that difference. If anybody's listening. Whether you're 50 or 60 or whatever word, just get started on it now. Can't change what happened in the past necessarily, but certainly learn from it. That's the key.
0: And so if if someone, like, let's say they're listening and they're like, you know what, I probably and again, most of the people who listen to this, I assume, exercise and work out. Otherwise, what the fuck, would you listen to me ever talk about anything? But maybe it's for their parents, a mom, dad, somebody. Uh, maybe they're a similar boat. They're in their 50s um, or even maybe even younger. doesn't matter. Like, what's what would you tell? Like, where do they start? Because I think for a lot of people, they get so – overwhelmed or they don't know what to do, how to attack it. And a lot of times we will read intake forms or we'll hear things from people. They'll say, Hey, well, I really want to come to the gym, but I have to get fit before I come here. And I go, (laughs) dude, I don't like, you know, I don't clean my house before the cleaning lady comes, even though Heather tries to do that. And I'm like, this is what I don't, I'm not going to cut my fucking grass before the landscaper comes. This is stupid. This is what they do. They're here to help us. And that's what we do. And so, like, if you were to tell somebody who's like, or I'm sure you've taught friends of yours who have maybe asked, like, hey, man, you know, I am I got 80 pounds to lose. I don't feel good. I don't, you know, things aren't going right. Where do I begin?
1: Well, much like I would give advice in many different ways now, as we talked about earlier, is, you know, everybody needs a coach. And I believe you have to find a coach or a mentor in that space. If you're truly ready to make the transformation, then you've, I believe you've got to help. You've got to find somebody who's willing to help you on that journey that knows what they're talking about. So – you know somebody who's looking to gain or lose 80 pounds uh, and wants to start now and is truly ready to make the transformation i'm not going to say well you need to work with me and i'll help you develop a plan that's not my that's not my lane that's your lane jeremy as a as a fitness and health expert and and, and there's reasons that uh, people who are really good at stuff have coaches i mean tiger as he said he didn't forget to play golf while he was uh, away for 13 months after his accident, but he's got a coach. He's got a golf swing coach that helps him out. And there are executives and organizations that have coaches that help them with their business skills and to, and to go forward. And I believe that everyone needs to have a, a coach or a trainer who truly wants to make that big transformation. Now, there, and then the question might be, well, I don't have access to that. I don't have the money to do that. And you know, I got, I believe you got to. And and my wife helped me do this because we did have situations where we said, I don't, we don't really have the you know, extra money for the uh, money for a trainer. And we'd like, no, no, no. I don't think we have the money not to have this trainer in terms of what, you know, good health costs money. Bad health costs lots of money though. And then, you know, the, the other places that you're putting your money in terms of uh, where you're spending it uh, in restaurants or wherever it is. And you start to eat a little bit healthier and eat at home. I think that that finds you the money that you need to go find a trainer. But that would that would be the advice. Somebody who needs to make a big, transformation. That would be the advice that I would have to them is to find a trainer. Second thing I would really talk to them about is it's more in their mindset as well. Uh, What are they willing to sacrifice to make that transformation? Because, you know, you can't continue to do the same things over and over again and expect some different outcome to go forward with. What are you willing not to do? It might be the people you hang out with. It might be the places that you uh, go for entertainment. It might be the place that you work. are you willing to sacrifice some of those things that are making you sick uh, to to get better? You need to be ready to make that decision or those
0: decisions. Well, it is crazy. It is a mindset shift. And obviously some people economically, you know, if you can't do it, there is so much free shit. Oh, my gosh. Out there, too, um, to watch, to listen to, to see, to learn. And most people like myself are relatively receptive. Like I try to get back to everybody in a somewhat realistic time frame. It's getting a little bit um, out of hand these days. But I always look at those things as like investments, right? Like where, especially the things that I'm not great at. And if I go down a list of like, if I have a financial advisor, if I have a CPA, if I have a general doctor, if I have a dentist, I have an eye doctor, I have a landscaper, I have a mechanic, like these are all people we pay. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but are those things more important than me being healthy, moving good, feeling good? I don't think they are because when I feel like shit, honestly, I don't give a fuck about anything else. Like I don't care how my car runs. I don't care if my pool is clean. I really could give a shit what the Dow's doing. If I feel like garbage, like that's to me. And obviously I do this for a living, but that's the only thing that, that really matters. And I never look at it as like, well, it's an expense for me. I'm like, it's just an investment. And I'll, I'll ask this before I let you go. You yourself, obviously like this, is what you do. And what kind of stuff have you like invested in, in terms of like coaching or like a mastermind group that you've probably been a part of? Like, how has that progressed, and like, how early did you start doing it, and like, what does it look like today?
1: Well, that's, good. that's a good question. I think if I look at one, in fact, I had the opportunity yesterday to also see a mentor of mine, an executive coach, the first executive coach I ever worked with back in 2003. Uh, he, he lives in Prescott, Arizona. He lived in Oregon for a long time, moved to uh, Prescott. And we went, I took my sons and my wife and went to have lunch with him yesterday, first time I had seen him. I saw him once about five years ago in Chicago. But first time we really had a chance to spend some time and, and break bread and have a good time, and you know you mentioned when did I get started in that investment side? So in 2001, I went to my first what I would say leadership conference. So I was looking to grow my leadership skills, and the investment was about five thousand dollars. So it was an opportunity to go see this leader, play golf with him, and be uh, at his house, sit through a uh, leaders two days of leadership training with many different authors and things like that. And that was that was pretty powerful. And I came back and I listened to this CD from this company, Building Champions, that had executive coaches. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, and I I listened to them like that sounds pretty cool. I was thirty, let's say two thousand one. I was thirty two years old, thirty three years old, and uh, I was in a leadership role. There was you know I was over my head, no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, I was I was out. <clears throat> was it? I'll distancing my skis or whatever it was. I don't know what the saying is as you go forward. I say, my, I'm, my
0: best friend said it at my wedding. He goes, about what well, Heather, because he thinks she's so much hotter than me, which I don't know about all that. Uh, <laughs> no, she's way better looking than me. Uh, he said, You out you kicked your coverage. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'll kick my coverage in, in terms of leadership. And I did that as well with my wife, no doubt about it. I'll kick my coverage. But um, I went through my performance review. And this again, much like going through a health assessment. And it was the worst and best performance review I'd ever been through in my life. It was so true. The guy gave me such great, true feedback, and I'm still friends with him today. He promoted me to president down the road. I said, man, performance review like this, I need some help. I need a coach. I said, if you're not willing to pay for it, though, I'm willing to make the investment because my wife and I have talked about it. We're going to give this up, whatever we need to do. Uh, But that was, you know, the organization invested in it for me, but I worked with him for eight years, of which uh, four of those years were my own money. Afterward, I left the company and started my own business. And work with him for four years so from a business coaching standpoint that was the first time i i got to make that investment i made it in fort wayne indiana i worked with a uh, a trainer in fort wayne from a fitness standpoint but again i wasn't i wasn't ready to make the sacrifices i need to to make it lifelong and that was more of a mindset than it was uh, the reason behind the training so that was big for me certainly the investment in the in the programs that are even a little bit smaller you know again and this not it's it feels like a shameless plug to come on like I'm kissing up or something, whatever it is. But you know those, those packages that you put together with a 47-day transformation or the 30-30 that I just finished up, and I haven't done all of them every time, but it gives me the discipline. It gives me a kick in the tail that I was looking for. The 30-30 really for me uh, because too many times I was doing a 25-minute AMRAP instead of a 30-minute. Just adding those extra five minutes at oh, the yeah. end and being – connected to a group of people like that which is very important as well if you don't have the train to then be connected to a group of people who will help to inspire, encourage and motivate you to, to keep going. Uh, and so people posting pictures of their workouts and things like that on the, on the private Facebook group, group those are important. That's a mastermind to me in terms of people that are doing that and then you know I've started a couple of my own masterminds with, with individuals again that investing of time to get something done because it takes time to do those things as well. It's not one of those things that's free your time is uh, not limited. Or, excuse me, time is not, uh, it is limited. It's not infinite with regards to the time that you have. So, you got to choose where you're investing your time and you got to give things up too to make that happen.
0: And I found most people too who find, you know, however you define success, whether it's financial or happiness or somewhere, you know, across the spectrum, they're willing to do that. And I always looked at it where, especially when I didn't have money younger, if I could buy like a training module hmm. or something for, if it's 400 bucks, can I make 4,000 bucks from this? And without a doubt, every single time, the answer is yes. Or if I would go to, I'm trying to think of like something cheap, like I've been gifted shit to like Tony Robbins and all their crazy shit that I never would have paid for. It just seems too extreme to me. Um, but I did learn a lot of stuff more so from just the people you're around. But I remember like buying like a Dave Ramsey, like, I don't know, Entree Leadership or some retire inspired thing to drag Heather to so she would, you know, believe the shit I would say, even though I'm saying the same shit because I'm just parroting these guys' information. But that conversation would be like a hundred bucks. Now I'd spend the day there. Which so it's a Saturday, um, but a hundred bucks, and I sit there all day, and I would say to myself, "Can I get ten x from this? Like, so is this hundred dollars in one day? Can I make a thousand bucks from this, or can I do something that'll change my life?" And the answer is almost always yes if you go into that with mindset. And the same thing when I would start doing uh, mastermind groups, like I finally joined like a real. This is probably like what am I twenty eight or nine, and I forget like we, you had to be doing a certain amount of money, like it's pretty substantial, and I think it was maybe. 800 bucks a month, something like that. And even if the information, most of it, I knew because this business is not at least the the gym business is not complex. All the other shit we do is getting ridiculous. But it's leads and conversions. You know, can I get traffic? Can I talk mm-hmm. with people? Can I create relationships, blah, blah, blah. But just knowing I had to check in and be accountable like every Friday with the numbers. Yeah, that was helpful. And I could always steal stuff. But now I'm friends with this group of people. Still to this day, we kinda of beg, borrow, and steal each other's stuff. So whether that group ended up costing me ten grand, I have made literally fifty times that from those guys and those same ideas. Cause one guy was just doing two little things that I wasn't doing and I could use it. Now if I don't do that, I never meet him, I never get better, I never change. And I would say for anybody listening, like, I don't know where you're at financially, but if you can look at these things as like investments mm-hmm. instead of expenses, even if they don't make money today. I, I can promise almost always you can learn something or take something that will propel you to the next level because I've never met anybody who's like nope never had a coach never talked to anybody got a terrible su- circle of friends just got fucking lucky a million times and here I am kind of crazy so your stuff real quick um, where do these guys find you at you do have a podcast um, what is the podcast about and what's everything else
1: sure the Uncommon Leader podcast is, is the podcast I started about a year and a half ago And I interview those leaders uh, that I've come in contact with either, you know, early on in the journey of those have been made an impact in my life, or I've also been adding in some current clients and talking with some of the successes that they're having with regards to the work that they're doing. But I'm doing interviews of those individuals on a regular basis. And we end up calling it the, the Uncommon Leader podcast again, because of the, you know, the result being something different than just either making more money or becoming more productive at work, but they're becoming that whole person. And how did they use some of the experiences that they had at work to make uh, a difference in somebody else's life? So one of the things that I always ask the first question of everybody is to tell me a story of someone who made a difference in their life when they were young that still impacts who they are today. And it talks about those individuals that, you know again, trigger in their mind uh, who they remember that had an impact on their life. And it's been it's been really cool to hear some of those stories. So I'm digging into their stories. And trying to learn more about them. I also do a weekly newsletter, sort of a little bit like the kind of leadership tips and things that I'm reading, things I'm learning, almost kind of Cliff Notes versions of some of the things that I'm leading with. And then I'm also somewhat active on Instagram, Coach.John Gallagher. I don't know how I ended up getting the dot, but Coach John Gallagher was take, taken by somebody some of those. Ass- some online. asshole scooped She's it up before was. you. Yeah. What a bum. And on, on LinkedIn as well. So those, those keep me pretty busy too.
0: Nice too. So what, um, where does it go from here?
1: Well, for me, you know, again, I, I, I certainly have had conversations with my financial advisor. Said I'm not ready to retire yet. And, How old are you? Uh, 53. So I'm not even close to that anyway from retiring in terms of wanting to. I think it's biblical that I need to continue if to they pull, whatever I'm doing.
0: Because what is the real like? If you did the traditional 401k route, 59 and a half, is that is that what you can they start have at 59 and a half without yeah. getting penalized? Right. Otherwise, if it's a Roth, you can take your original distribution, but not the gains from it, and then they tax you. It's. Um. I remember when I first. I think it was. I only had one, like, real job. I don't call this a real job. Um, it was like, who was the guy? Where was the money at? TIA, Craft or some shit? And he's like, you're on the, I forget what year it was. He's like, you're on the 20, 40, whatever retirement cycle. And I'm, like, laughing at this dude. He's like, what's so funny? I'm like, I'm not fucking working that long, bro. And uh, he's like, you have no money. I'm like, you just wait and see. Um, I'm sure he thought I was just a little asshole. But I think about that, too, because I talk with and I say it to my to my I joke with Heather. I'm like, I'm going to be retired like 20 years before you and you still gonna have to work every day. Kind of joking, kind of serious. I don't think it could do like nothing as long as it was fun. Like, I don't want to do the same clip forever, just like you. I'm sure you don't want to travel forever at the same pace. I go. But if you can build some kind of structure where it's like, yeah, I'm working and I'm producing money, but it doesn't feel like I'm killing myself to do it. That's probably the goal, I'd imagine.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty close to it in terms of what I mean, he told me. The, probably similar. He's like, "You got to go to your 67. I'm like, "Well, can you tell me like when I don't have to? I'll, I'll work until I'm sixty-seven because I want to, right? I mean, I want to continue to add value. To me, it's even biblical in terms of saying, you know, as long as you get a breath left, there needs to be a value that you add to somebody's life in terms of making things happen uh, or adding to them. But um, you know, for me, uh, it is trying to. Continue to grow myself as a leader, so that I can continue to have an impact on others' lives on their leadership skills as well. And that's you know, hence the name of the company, Growing Champions, is growing uh, uh, individuals' leaders so that they can grow other champions. Our country, I believe, uh, the term that I've heard used before is leadership sad. Uh, in terms of you know, just look at the state, and we talked about healthcare for a long time. I look at the state of our uh, political system, and look at the state of the things that are going on in our country, and even in the world. Uh, and we could probably find value in uh, more leadership, more authentic leadership in the countries to make really good things happen. So that's, that's the, that's the type of impact that I want to make. For me, I want to continue on the, you know, the, the progressive fitness journey for me as I age at 53. So it's not going to be about all these personal bests and things like that as I go forward with it. But I want to stay healthy such that what I want to be able to do, whether it's having grandchildren in the future and getting down on the floor and, uh, you know, playing on the floor with them, being able to do that because I had mobility no to do it, oh, yeah. or whether it's still being able to play basketball once a grandson might get to 13 years old and you know shoot hoops with them. I'm not going to play one on one with them and things like that, and embarrass myself, but uh, certainly would came a whore- uh, like came to be able a to do those things. And I talked about you know, my uh, buddy and I had one of the influencers I had in fitness. Um, he was a self self proclaimed couch potato uh, till age 44. And he became a world-class Ironman with about, within about four years. I mean, he went off the deep end when in terms of making really good Psych- things. Psychopath. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it was crazy, some of the results. But he had an impact on me. And he, had, he told me one day, he says, you need to just start by, by running a mile. I'm like, dude, the only time I'm ever running a mile is if somebody's chasing me with a baseball bat because a gun, it doesn't matter. I don't have to run. They can shoot me. But with a baseball bat, <laughs> I'll run. And I ended up running, you know, three 5Ks and, and a 10K before I injured my neck. May have been the running that cause that. I don't know. But he had an impact on my life as well in terms of I want, to, I want to be able to provide that model, that example to others as they go forward too.
0: Well, it's cool because I think for most people, if they listen and you work a job that sucks and you don't want to do it, it's not motivating. It's right. not inspiring. And even in days where like maybe I'm tired of shit, but then I'll mentally think of something I'm doing here. I'm like, well, that's cool and it's fun. And I can get this like, right. f- I don't know if it's like fake energy or what it is, but it'll last for a couple hours. I can get the task done and then I can go crash later. And I think if you don't have that, what's the motivation to get up out of bed every day?
1: Well, you're exactly right. It was one of the things, a quote that actually – so I used to say this to individuals as a leadership tip. You know, if you find something you love, you won't ever work a day in your life, and that's just not true. I mean, I've listened to you and others and say, if you find something you love and you're good at it, you're probably going to work really hard to make sure you can have an impact overall.
0: I don't know, like – is, does somebody attribute it to that quote? I don't know. I
1: couldn't find in someone who's attributed to it. Because
0: it feels like it's the biggest bunch of horseshit yeah, I've I agree. ever heard. It, it I, me, I used to say it. I like I like probably 95% of what we do here. Now, the 5% does suck, but 95% of it I think is cool. However, the one I go back to is, well, if you love what you do – And probably specifically if you work for yourself, you're just kind of working 100 hours for you. So it's not 40 hours for someone else. Because when it's you, it always kind of has to be on or your team always has to be on. And if I go to like if I use McDonald's as the example or Coca-Cola. Everybody in the world knows what fucking McDonald's is and what Coca-Cola is. They never stop marketing. They never stop advertising. They never stop sponsoring stuff. Yet everybody already knows. Well, why is that? Because they have to be on top of mind. So it's constant. So if you think like you're going to branch out on your own and not give the same effort, I'm like, there's no way you'll be successful. It's way too competitive. And it, it really is. You'll be successful because you put $100 into it. Because right. you feel like a good chunk of it isn't like pulling teeth. But it's still, it's your time, no matter what. Like, even when I love stuff, like, I'm here today. I don't even know what fucking time it is. We've been here for, like, two hours. Um, It's 1230. I have so many emails. I don't even look at them. I'm tired. I don't want to do it. Um, Maybe I'll punt them today. I go, but this is still my time on a Sunday, and it's your time, and we like doing this, and it's fun. And selfishly, like, I'll make money and whatever, and we'll juice your stuff up. But we're still here. And that's the takeaway for people. It's like, so just don't be confused and think, like, you're not going to work more. Especially if you love it, because you'll probably work three times as much. Exactly. In all reality. Yep. Um, cool beans, dude. I'll put all your stuff in the show notes. This is all good stuff, man. The healthcare stuff, for sure. I didn't know. Um, way more complex than even I thought. Definitely. Different, crazy. Um, but I like it. So if you guys need to get you, where's the easiest way they can uh, holler at you? Instagram? Or- yeah,
1: Instagram's the easiest way. Coach John Gallagher is the easiest way. LinkedIn, uh, it's the same. Coach John Gallagher. So both those spots are easy. to Get in touch with me.
0: Nice dude. I'll put the podcast uh, link in the show notes, too. Uh, if you guys got <clears throat> questions for him, obviously, hit him up. Um, he's pretty accessible. Seems like a normal dude, so don't be creepy uh, when you send him messages. And uh reminder, 4 Days of Fitness, if you guys want to check it out, I'll give you a podcast discount code. Links on my Instagram bio. We'll be pumping it out every single day here on the newsletter. And then if you guys want a free sample of Athletic Greens, hit me up. Otherwise, athleticgreens.com slash Jeremy Scott will get you all the free stuff from there. And uh, I'll be back... Um, I'll be back next maybe Friday or Saturday. I got a lot of stuff in the works that I'll share with you guys as we go. But uh John's my last like guest for probably a week or so or two. So I'll get Heather back on here too. But I appreciate it, dude. This is all good stuff, man. It was a
1: blast, Jeremy. I appreciate what you do and uh, having me out on the podcast was a was a blessing as well.
0: Well yeah, dude, all the way from South Carolina via West Virginia. Mm-hmm. All over the world. Good stuff. So give them a follow, you guys. Check it out. If you got questions, obviously hit them up or shoot me a note. And until next time, you guys, eat well, train hard, be nice to people, and please, you guys, keep doing shit you love with people you enjoy because your life is too short not to. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.